What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another new episode of Behind the Scene Podcast. I am your co-host for this episode, Dion Donovan. I write and create my own comics at Title Page Comics. Y'all can check me out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And this is my co-host. Yes, this is Uncle Jack328. Follow me on Twitter at Uncle Jack328. First name Colby, last name Jackson. This is the Behind the Scene Podcast. We are streaming on Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as Anchor. We are basically a week removed from the debut of The Saints of Newark, a soprano story released Mm -hmm. in theatrically and on HBO Max simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And let's just say it has some mixed results box office wise, which is expected. And critically, I guess it's received well enough. But, you know, this has been kind of a long time coming. It's been. A lot of it's been a long time since we returned to the Sopranos universe since it ended. And uh, you being a big time Sopranos fan, you caught that original run on HBO. Yes, sir. Man, I just want to know what were your expectations heading to this film? And what was uh, your last kind of like your final thoughts as you left the theater? Because you caught in the theaters. I saw on HBO Max. What was your impression going into the film? And I guess what was your feelings as you left the theater? Man. So to answer your first question, I'm going to keep it all the way above with you, bro. I have very low expectations for what a movie based on an iconic TV series was capable of. Mm. Um, And that's not a reflection on the quality of the TV show. It's more based on the way that you view the transition from television into movies. In 2019, we had a movie that was released on Netflix called El Camino, a Breaking Bad story, which was a continuation of that TV show. Now, a lot of people were, excuse me, a lot of people were not fans of that movie because it didn't necessarily capture what they were looking for. With this movie, The Many Saints of Newark, being a prequel to the Sopranos TV series, I kind of looked at it as a happy accident. I looked at it as something I'm happy that I'm getting it, but I didn't necessarily need it. You know what I'm saying? It's here. Mm, I'm going to appreciate it because it's here, but I'm not going into this with the expectations of this being better than what the Sopranos was. Walking away from it as the movie ended, I'm not even going to front on it, bro. And my Mm -hmm. wife worded it perfectly when we were on the way home from the theater. When the movie ended, she told me, I want it more. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that I could come away from a movie that is set for a prequel to one of the top five greatest TV shows, in my opinion, wanting more from it is a victory. Um, In my personal opinion, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit before in a prior conversation, the gangster movie genre in American cinema is all but dead and over with. I don't know. 
I don't know if it's because of social media. I don't know if it's because of so many outlets of people who are able to give interviews and provide insight as to the actual events, as to what happened during this time. But to me, I think the gangster movie genre has taken a dive because we don't take it seriously anymore. Unfortunately, in this country, we have become so desensitized to sociopathic behavior and bad things happening to people and people just being, you know, human beings just being disgusting is the word I'm going to use here. (laughs) We've come so desensitized and accustomed to people being bad people to where the gangster movie genre doesn't necessarily hit the way that it used to hit. The last gangster movie that I think was worth a damn was The Irishman, which was straight to Netflix Mm -hmm. and was damn near four fucking hours. That was a (laughs) long-ass fucking movie, man. Yeah, I'm saying damn near four hours to where by the time you finish watching it, you was like, damn, I can't wait for this to be over with. Even though Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, everybody involved with that movie gave maximum effort. And that was a great movie, but it was almost four fucking hours. Yeah, no doubt, man. They were in their bag with that one, but it tests your limits for sure. Oh, yeah. And by all accounts, The Irishman was the end of an era. That was the end of an era in cinema from Martin Scorsese and everybody who was involved. But just to further highlight the point I want to make about the end of, or the the death of the American gangster movie. Um, This past week, while I'm at work at the VA hospital, I've been listening, like Sammy the Bull Gravano, who is probably the most famous federal witness in the history of organized crime, has a podcast on Google. Where he's detailing, you're like, that sounds crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. That sounds crazy. And for anybody who doesn't know who that is, just type in Sammy the Bull in a Google search and you'll know what I'm saying here. But on this podcast, this is a man who was a made man in a crime family detailing his life in Costa Nostra, right? And mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why the gangster movie genre doesn't hold up the way that it used to in American cinema is the curtain has already been unveiled. Everything that you want to know about that particular lifestyle is at your fingertips. So for this movie to be based on a TV series inspired by the Cosa Nostra or the Italian-American gangster lifestyle, it holds a certain amount of weight, but my perception going into it after looking at the, at the trailers and seeing who was casted, I was cautiously optimistic going into this, right? Now, do you agree with that or disagree with that? Yeah, I can, I can totally agree with that. I mean, uh, I think the director of the film had some very interesting things to say about the industry, the film industry, and uh, what sells and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I won't go too further into detail with that, because that's a whole conversation onto itself. But 
Yes, no, the, Amer- the American gangster film is genre is for the most part it's very diminished right now. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, that that information is very accessible to anyone who does a quick search engine on anything related to the subject matter. And uh, <laughs> it's just the fact that I think people, um, you know, it had its peak, it had its height, and like things, mm-hmm. and just in life, everything has its circles and and right. everything has its pattern, and it, we're just at that time where like a westerner right it doesn't really have that appeal to the american public anymore or worldwide let's be honest i I agree with you like the general public is no longer entertained by the american gangster kind of story per se that's my opinion on that we're no longer like you can get on vlad tv and see him interviewing made men who were in the mafia you know what i'm saying yep (laughs) it's a little bit too easy to have access to some of these stories of things that happened in years prior. But moving on to this movie and assessing the quality of this movie here, what I'm going to say is that the fact that this was a prequel to The Sopranos does everything to enhance the legacy of that property because I went into it expecting this to be a two-hour summary shorthand version of what we got throughout five or six seasons of The Sopranos on HBO. And I was pleasantly surprised to learn that upon watching it, it wasn't any of that. This was a story about one particular character and how he impacted the world that we've seen in these five seasons of The Sopranos. This was not the origin story of Tony Soprano that we all thought it was going to be. And if you look at the trailer to this movie, you would be led to believe that that is what this was going to be, right? Or wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I thought it was going to be like the origin of him, per se. And it was refreshing for me having seen every episode of The Sopranos, that it wasn't that. Because that would have been the more easy, predictable route to take, and that would have been marginally less interesting. Throughout the two-hour runtime of this movie, we see characters who are referenced and seen throughout every episode of the series on HBO. They're in the background. Everything that characters like Paulie and Syl and Uncle Junior, who we're definitely going to address, and John Soprano and Livia and all of these characters, they're in the background. They're doing everything that you expected them to do based off of the way they acted on the main TV series. But in the meanwhile, the story of the main character of this movie is playing out in a way to where you're invested in everything that's going on. I thought that we would get more fan service than what we got, but they gave us just enough, right? To the point where my mom has never seen The Sopranos before, but watched the movie and enjoyed it, even though she's never seen a single episode of that TV show. And I'm there with her. Um, same boat. <laughs> <laughs> never, never watched right? it. Never. Ne- I didn't even know the opening theme song of the damn show. Oh, man, see, and, and, and I enjoyed the it. film. 
we got to get into that too. So addressing the actual plot of this movie here, right? I want to talk to you about the main character of this movie and Dickie Maltesante, right? Right. When we talk about these gangster movies. Do you feel as though the main character of this movie was he a good character or was he kind of a cipher type of character? When we talk about bad guys, it's not a secret that this gentleman here was not a good man. He was not a good character. He did things mm-hmm. in this movie that the average person would not do, right? But overall, right. how do you feel about the main character of this movie and him being the point of view character for us as the audience? Because this is the first gangster movie we've ever reviewed on this podcast. So right, how do you right. feel about the character of Dickie Moltisante? I have to say that he was a great character, Dickie Moltisante. Mm. And the reason why is because for him being the central focus of the film, he carried it. You know what I'm saying? You were in tri- you were interested and you were invested in his character arc and what he was going through. If he was a bad character, I'd be like, I don't give a fuck. What's Tony up to? I want to see more of Tony Soprano. I want to see more <laughs> of this character. I want to see more of that character. Uh, you know, he could have been the Cole Young of the Sopranos universe, so to speak, you Ooh. know? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been. He could have been, but he was a good character. And you were invested in him. He had uh, the actor's, uh, what's the actor's name? Alessandro Nivola. Yep. Unfortunately, I only know him from Jurassic Park 3, which is 2001. So I know he's got a catalog of work. I know he's a good actor. I just, I saw him like, oh, that's, um, that's homeboy, Dr. Grant's assistant in Jurassic Park 3. So you got me on that one. i recognize the actor i know he's done work in the last 20 years but that's the role i recognized him but i think he did a great job with this character because like you said this is a character that was presented as a good guy this is a character that was presented like oh well he's not as bad as his peers he's the best amongst the worst right but that doesn't exactly make him a good person (laughs) you know what i'm saying um so we see this character grow throughout the film and we see him kind of presented as, oh, he stands up for what he believes in. His father is a little bit of an abuser. You know, he has a history with women. He finds his father goes overseas to Italy, gets a new hottie, new hot young thing from the motherland, Italy, brings her back. And we see that all oh, shit. Well, you know, he's really to plays his father Kind of a typical role, not going to lie. This particular character, standard mafioso affair, right? So we know he's yep. an abuser. We know he's, you know, he's a dickhead. He's a dickwad. And eventually he's going to hit his wife and do all this other shit. And he does. And, you know, we see Dick Moltisanti stand up for his new, basically, stepmom, you yep. know, and stand up to his dad. And we see that he goes, we see that he has history. His father's had history with his mom. And it's not good history. We don't know the ultimate details of what happened to his mom, but we know it's not good. Mm-hmm. And we see him stand up for this new, his new stepmom. And we see this character slowly but surely transform right into the same person his dad is <laughs> throughout the whole film. It's a slow, tra- it's a nice, slow transformation. 
It's not very like direct, you know what I'm saying? And I think a, a good theme of this film is like father, like son throughout this whole film. Um, but yeah, Dick Moltisanti, he did a, that's a, that was a good character. And when we see, when we see the conclusion of this character, you just think there is no other way for it to go, but this Man. conclusion. Okay. Yeah. So I, I like that what you said, like father, like son, I think, and this is falling into the same category here because the character that Ray Liotta plays, which is two parts as the father of the main character and also the twin brother of the father and the uncle of the main character. Mm-hmm. Well, Ray Liotta, we all know his most iconic role is in Goodfellas as Henry Hill, right? True. Right. I mean, that goes without saying. Whatever. By default. By default. Absolutely. And I think that it provides a little bit of insight into the way that we view some of these organized crime figures in every gangster movie that you can think of excuse me going back to the godfather godfather part two scarface carlito's way bronx tale whatever you want to say these are bad men who believe they are doing the right thing but the right thing is only right when they are serving their own purposes They're not doing things to help out other people. The right thing only matters when you are able to get what it is that you are trying to get. And therefore, you are justifying what you're doing as being right because you're trying to get to a certain point. You're trying to achieve something. You're trying to meet a certain benchmark. Well, I'm stealing, but I'm trying to feed my family or Mm -hmm. I'm doing X, Y, Z. But I'm doing this so that eventually I can be doing something else. Right. Right. (laughs) And I think this is what the love affair is that we have with our good, bad guys, such as a Tony Soprano, such as a Walter White, such as a ghost from a power TV series or any other morally gray area main characters in any of these shows that we come accustomed to um back to this movie here because i don't want to get too broad spectrum with this here i think that the central theme of the many saints of newark is hypocrisy Mm. hypocrisy and what do you do when you're faced with hypocrisy right The racial elements of this movie are something that has rarely been explored throughout the entire series of The Sopranos. And some of the things that stick out to me, like you said, like father, like son, to me, that plays right back into the theme of hypocrisy, right? So Dickie Montesanti kills his father because he feels his father is being a hypocrite. He's mistreating this beautiful woman that he brought from the motherland to take care of her. But instead of taking care of her, he mistreats her the same way he mistreated her mother. Okay? Okay. In this movie, in this movie, you see multiple Italian descendant immigrants from Sicily who came over on a boat or whatever, look down upon black people as if they're not actual people. 
the character of Junior Soprano, for example, mentions that they kill their own people. Look at how they treat their own people. That's number one. The character of Paulie Walnuts, who is on the main show as well, talks some bullshit to the main black protagonist, Harold, at the bar, right? Right. But the, the, the female character who ends up falling in love with Dickie at the salon when she opens it up mentions how she looks up to Dion Warwick and the way that her hair is done, right? I promise you, I'm I'm taking notes as I'm watching this here, dog. Right? So I see Paulie, that man. So Paulie, while he's lifting weights in one particular scene in the movie, is lifting weights watching Soul Train with Don Cornelius as the host of Soul Train while he's pumping iron. <laughs> That's not oh, a coincidence. Man. You see what I'm saying? Nah, it's not. It's not like he was watching any other program. He has disdain for black people, but at the same time, while he's doing what he has to do to get in shape, he's watching Soul Train while Don Cornelius and black artists of that time are performing music catered to black people. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Right, right. He's- these are very important things that I think are very subtle kind of writing that the creator of the show, David Chase, kind of put in there. You gotta, you really gotta pay attention to see it. Uncle Junior, Corrado Soprano, mentions how black people will do certain things to their own people, but at the end of the movie, you see how petty and how slick this guy actually is in relation to his feelings towards our protagonist in this movie. <laughs> you, you, cooking, you, you man. Keep cooking. Shit. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't think that kind of thing doesn't get put in there by accident. That's one of the underlying themes of this particular movie that I think kind of elevated above where most people look at it and think this wasn't a good movie. That is very important when you consider that at its core, this is a movie telling the story of, you know, one character who happens to be fortunate enough to be connected to something such as Cosa Nostra and a family structure and guys that can do whatever they want to do contrasted against a black American character that really has to fight for everything it is that he gains in this world of organized crime. I just peeped that off top because I feel like that's something that enough people aren't paying attention to. And Mm -hmm. when you think about it, that's a fucking haymaker right there, dog. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. (laughs) Dude. and to me, that kind of enhances the actual story of this movie because you can separate that from the Sopranos TV show. The one thing that you can separate from the actual TV show is the story of Dickie Moltisante versus Harold, the numbers runner in Newark, New Jersey, up against the backdrop of an actual event that happened in Newark, riots during the 1960s where the police were just in the streets with tanks 
and the National Guard gunning down black folks. This is something that actually happened, right? Right. So, to me, the central theme of this movie is hypocrisy. Dickie Montesante tells Tony Soprano, look, hey, I know I got you these speakers. I know that they're stolen. Look, all you got to do is tell yourself this is the last time you're ever going to steal something. <laughs> Until you do it again. And, and that's simple. That, that's it. Yep. And and to me, that's where we draw the line between some of these anti-hero type characters that are indelible to film culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of layers to this movie that you really got to look for in order to understand what's going on, bro. My bad. I went off on a little tangent. I'm sorry. <laughs> nah, you're good, man. You're good. You're cooking a lot of shit, man, because I did see a few reviews on the film, and some critics were saying how the race riots and all that wasn't exactly necessary for the story and kind of filler. It wasn't a requirement to make the film and the story the way it was. Um, just watching it from my perspective, never being a Sopranos fan, the first five minutes, you know, we see Harold chasing, a, you know, a kid on the street. And my first thought is, oh, shit, there's, a, there's black people in this movie. <laughs> Yo, you know, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, you know, and I, I didn't really watch any trailer. I see it. I think I saw one trailer. I didn't really look up the film. I'm like surprised. Like, oh shit, they actually have some black people in this movie. Okay, and, and that's a fact because as we're in there, I mean, fuck, bro. There was only like ten people in the theater when we went to see it. My wife sitting next to me. She says this is the most black people I've seen throughout five throughout the whole Sopranos TV show. But again, I feel that that is significant to it wouldn't be accurate if you're telling a story about Newark, New Jersey in the early 60s, 70s, whatever time period that is. And you don't show black people in there. You know what I'm saying? That wouldn't be historically accurate if you're trying to capture a certain period in time where things are going on in a certain region. Right, right. uh, on that end of it, I gotta give, I gotta give credit to whoever was involved with writing this TV, well, writing the TV show and writing the movie because they got that right. Right. Um, my, I mean, my first reaction to that was kind of like, are they jumping a little bit on the trend here? You know, with Black Lives Matter and trying to mm-hmm. incorporate, you know, um, safely a black perspective of the movie, or if you want to use the safer term, the in quote. African American experience, <laughs> and clearly, I don't feel as though that's something that they did. I feel like, I feel like, oh my goodness! I sorry. I agree. I, I agree, man. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, like African American experience, man. Somebody who wasn't black coined that term, but whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> so. I do kind of want to get into, I mean, we kind of already addressed the main character of the movie. We addressed, you know, the backdrop to it. I want to ask you kind of about the story to this particular movie here. Do you feel like this movie told a complete story overall with everything that we kind of discussed here? 
Um, I got a, I got a sense of conclusion near the ending. It told primarily the story of Dicky Moltisanti. Mm-hmm. If it was primarily Tony Soprano, then no, we because obviously it would have led up to the TV series. It gave an origin to Tony uh, Soprano a little bit, but it also gave a backdrop to the supporting characters of the original series run and this Dicky Moltisanti. It was really his. It was almost like a standalone movie of him featuring Tony Soprano and featuring the Sopranos supporting cast. Um, simply because if it was told from another perspective, we wouldn't gotten the full picture. We got the full picture. We got the full story of this guy who thought he was doing good, who thought he was, since I'm the nicest amongst my peers, that makes me a good person. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I I don't call a black guy the N-word, but he's making me money. And oh, what I'm man. giving him in exchange is chump change. I don't really think nothing more of him as a tool to get money. So, oh, he's not that bad. He, you know, he doesn't call him the N-word. And look, he's allowing him in the, you know, the Italian restaurant. And no, oh, look, he's, you know, he's sitting with him. It's like, yeah, he's doing it for the benefit of himself. Yep. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he's allowing his associates to belittle him. Right. He's, a, he, he's telling his he's telling his main squeeze, hey, don't look at him. Because he's insecure that his main squeeze might wanna might want to see what some chocolate tastes like. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and to me, to me, I'm gonna keep it all the way 100 with you. We might use lose some viewers here from what I'm gonna say here. But in Go 2000 ahead, in, in in the modern era in 2021 don't get me wrong. There's a lot of motherfuckers that look at us the exact same way that Dicky Montesanti was looking at our character of Harold. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. man, dude. Our brother got shot life. and killed over that shit recently. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's, yep. some, real, like, that's, that's some real shit here. I don't want to get too political or anything like that and take this outside of entertainment, but the way that he viewed the character of Harold a lot of people, and I'm not even gonna put a race or a face on it, view black people, people, men who look like us the same way that that character was viewing the character of Harold. Yeah, he's harmless because me and him have a relationship, but I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna stick my neck out for him because I'm already better than he is. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> Here's a couple thousand dollars. Go ahead, leave. You already I made triple my amount. It's no mm-hmm. no harm done. You know what I'm saying? Reach our yep. end of our term of our agreement. Oh, you're back in the area. Here's a hundred. You should come work for me again. Yeah, sure. Yep. Make make Absolutely. me more money. Yeah. And and while we might have liked the character of Dickie Montesanti in certain instances, we knew from jump you should never like a guy that murders his father burns him alive and then takes his side piece as his side piece while he has a wife at home. Right. Like you're not <laughs> you're not supposed to like that guy. Even if he's the even if he's the best out of the worst, you're not supposed to like him. And I appreciate the fact that this movie told us that we should not like him. You know what I'm saying? The point of view character is not always the likable character here. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. oh man, this was a good fucking movie, bro. Like, as we talk about this and break this down, 
I'm viewing this as being better than it was when I watched it. But um, so my next thing that I kind of want to get into here are some of the side characters. And also, I think my least favorite part of this movie here. And this is because this is coming from me as somebody who watches the Sopranos TV show. Okay. I, I feel like they might have spent a little bit too much time focusing on the relationship between Tony Soprano and his mother. Um, mm. without, giving a, without giving away a spoiler, because I don't know if you ever plan on getting around to watching the actual Sopranos TV show, mm. the relationship between him and his mother gets explored more in-depth on the show because obviously... You know, there was more time to flesh that out. I don't know if they captured the essence of the mental health issues that his mother had in relation to the way she felt about her kids and her marriage. The way that they probably needed to in order for it to make sense in the movie. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, aside from great acting by the actress Vera Farminga. I don't know if that was something that was really necessary for this movie in particular. You know what I'm saying? Right, I, right. I think the relationship between Tony Soprano and his mother probably could have been saved for something to come after, but it kind of felt like that might have been tacked on a little bit just so that people who watched the show understand that his mom was always kind of a hateful, negative, toxic type of woman from day one. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I can feel you on that because I felt it was more character development for Tony mm -hmm. and to give him a little bit more length of time on screen so you can see a little bit more of that origin of him being who he is. Mm -hmm. uh, I never watched the original series, but I can tell from this her her mental condition is probably is just is a byproduct of her living condition. You know what I'm saying? Man, um, highly recommend, brother. Highly <laughs> recommend. Uh, yeah, from the treatment of her husband to you know that lifestyle, it's not a healthy lifestyle, and it's no, you know. It's just a common sense that you live that kind of lifestyle, and there's a byproduct of that for your mental health, physical health, spiritual health, mm -hmm. and you know, in most cases than not, it's going to end in tragedy uh, for mm -hmm. anyone involved. You know, what I'm saying I think that's a common theme you see with these mafioso type uh, films is that there is no exact happy quote unquote ending for majority of people who live these kind of things lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So okay. I think his mom's a little bit of victim of that. Yeah, and, and, and it's cool that we kind of got to see that, but I feel like maybe some screen time could have been devoted to other characters. For example, like we got John Bernthal portraying the father of Tony Soprano in this movie, but you know, and he stole every scene that he was in. Every yeah, scene, killed it. <laughs> every scene that he was in. I was like, damn, man, like they really could have made this movie about John Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's one of the strengths, obviously, because, you know, if they continue this later on, maybe we get more of that 
in the future. But I enjoyed that. But it just feels like those certain parts of it where they focused on the relationship with the mother just felt a little bit out of place with this gangster movie telling the story of a guy and his relationship with the world that he lives in and also how another person forms a relationship with this world that they live in. That's 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 probably the weakest part of the storyline for me personally. Um now the other thing that I kind of want to touch on here, man, and I'm glad that we both got to watch this movie because this, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm very happy that we both got to watch this movie and kind of perceive it in different ways here. So how do you feel about the love interest for our main character of Dickie Montesante and how she played her part in kind of affecting certain events that happened throughout the course of the movie? Uh, the character herself, she was, uh, she was a pet, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to put it in a kind word. She was a pet for the, mm-hmm. uh, Dickie's father. She mm-hmm. was a pet for Dickie himself. Um, you know, you have a woman who doesn't know the language, uh, is brought over just for the sake of a better living. She really mm-hmm. doesn't understand what's going on. She's just a beautiful piece that to, to display and have your way with, but not really valued as a person. And uh, even Dickie tried to mask like he like he valued her more so than her father, than his father. And mm-hmm. in the end, it it was a it was a facade. He really didn't value her in a different way than his than his father did. And um, I think she's kind of um, kind of like a victim of basically, yeah, you come over and there's 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 rules to engagement here. You got to hook up with us. You yep. know what I'm saying? It's not like you can come over. I hit it. And you know what I'm saying, and it's all good, and all of a sudden you're disinterested and you can leave. That shit's not gonna happen. Yep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So all, she's like she's like under contract, so she's a little bit oh, man. <laughs> she's man. a little bit of a victim here to the whole ordeal because she had to learn English. She had to you know, she had to basically cust- become accustomed to the American lifestyle, but she was not free to do what she wanted to do. She just she couldn't just up and pack and leave like okay i'm gonna go to florida and make a living or i'm gonna go here to make a living like no nah, you you're by our side you don't have no choice but to be with me you know what right. i'm saying so she played the victim of a pet and you know the actress did a good job and uh i'm not gonna complain like oh that's a bad role or whatever it, she served her purpose of the story mm-hmm. and it exposed the true nature of the characters that she was around so i think she did it. <laughs> I think she did a bang up job on what she did and what she was presented. That's a fact right there. And it, it's unfortunate because it's like you have this relatively young, relatively attractive woman who is reliant upon sociopaths in order for her to be able to advance in life. You know what right. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever life she left behind in Italy or Sicily couldn't have been much better than what it was when she got off of that boat in Newark, New Jersey. And you see her basically trickle through the fingertips of one terrible human being into the fingertips 
of another terrible human being and ultimately meet her demise because of the situation that she was in. But she didn't have any control over that. The fact that she had a conscience and what it was that she was doing ultimately led to her demise. And that's the most unfortunate part of that character arc. Mm. You know what I'm saying? In this world that these characters occupy, being a person with a conscience basically is putting an expiration date on you that comes before what it needs to come. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like, there there are layers to this that I think you really got to kind of look into here. You know what I'm saying? Nobody, like, who are the good guys in this movie? You know what I'm saying? Who are really (laughs) the good guys in this movie? You're rooting for the character of Harold, right? I Mm -hmm. am, because I identify with him. I'm rooting for this guy. But I'm also rooting for a guy who commits murders. I'm rooting for a guy who's a criminal. I'm rooting for a guy that doesn't want to go to work a nine to five, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm rooting for a guy that's cheating on his beautiful ebony... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for a guy... I'm rooting for a guy that's cheating on his wife and murdering and running numbers and getting in business with Frank Lucas because... He's the only guy in this movie that is morally a better human being than Dickie Montesante and all of these guys across the way that are a part of this thing that he could never be a part of. You know what I'm saying? Right. And and again, that that's a dynamic that is rare to a lot of gangster movies, in my opinion. Um, The next thing I kind of want to get into here. The portrayal of the young Tony Soprano, and I got some I got some inside baseball on this that I'm gonna get to here in a minute. I... But do you feel as though that character got enough screen time? You got enough insight into his upbringing and the way that he viewed this world that he was not a part of yet. Was there enough done with the character of a young Tony Soprano? Uh, this was a little bit tricky for me because I don't actually know how Tony Soprano acts or works as a character. Okay. So I'm gonna send me, you some clips. <laughs> for me, I, I just judging from the time spent, I can get a mm-hmm. sense that he's definitely gonna grow up to be that kind of a person, judging from what I hear and, and know about the show. Mm-hmm. I think that they spend just enough time on him to get that seed planted where you could see like it's believable that this guy is going to grow up to be the Tony Soprano that we know from the TV show. Mm-hmm. It's different than, let's just say, Solo, a Star Wars story. <laughs> you watch that, and you're like, there's no way this guy is going to grow up to be Han fucking Solo. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or, um, you know, certain characters in prequels, whatever. You're like, that, that doesn't add up. But for this film, I, I can see it. It added up to me that this guy would grow up to be a, a, a super mob boss who would, you know kill his cousin oh, you know man. for the benefit yeah. of, of 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 himself you know what i'm saying oh, or do man. whatever i don't know, go to certain extents to 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 live another day or to get the next big deal to get that next big cash flow in in his empire or whatever so i think i think they did a good job on that judging from just being an outsider looking in i think they did enough to implant implant that seed in the audience head that 
Yeah, this is the Tony Soprano we're seeing in the making. All right. So let's get into some inside baseball here, Brad. All right, let's do it. Let's Let's get into some inside baseball. And I mean, all it takes is a Google search to kind of confirm the thing that I'm talking about. The actor who portrayed Tony Soprano as a young man, teenager, adult, is the son of James Gandolfini, who portrayed Tony Soprano on the TV series. You know, unfortunately, of that character. Would look like there's this character. That doesn't really, you know what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I might be reaching for what it is that I'm saying here, but it doesn't feel like I'm watching somebody playing a part as opposed to watching somebody really embodying the essence of a character one way or the other. And that plays heavily into a scene that comes later on into the movie. But the fact that you see what I'm saying? There's <laughs> it's almost you, man. it's almost hard to explain knowing that the signature role that his father played came portraying a character that you're seeing this actor for the very first time in any form of media portraying like the level of continuity is almost perfect there's no drop off between the way that his father played that character and the way that he's playing that character right now in real time you see Mm. what i'm saying yeah two different it's two different actors portraying the same character in different ways, but everything makes sense and comes and forms perfectly at the very end of the movie. I have zero complaints about the portrayal of a young Tony Soprano in this movie, knowing the behind the scenes things that went on and also what went on on screen. It's almost impossible. Like, like I, I highly recommend whenever you got time actually watching the Sopranos TV series just so that you can kind of grade the performance of the son and the father playing the same character. I don't mm-hmm. know that in the history of cinema or TV there's ever been a father and a son portraying the same character. I don't know if that's ever happened before. You see what I'm saying? That is so, pretty unique now that I think absolutely. about it. And if this is the first time that I've ever seen that happen before, if I ever see it happen again after this, there's definitely a high benchmark that's already been set. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So with that being said here, I do kind of want to transition into the later parts of this movie here. When we get into Uncle Junior, now... Again, you haven't seen the show. What are your thoughts on Uncle Junior Soprano, dog? <laughs> Uncle 
Uncle Junior. Was that the bald headed one who got his back <laughs> <Yes>. busted? <laughs> <laughs> no respect. Zero oh, respect. Man, complete jobber. <laughs> complete jobber. Mid card at best, right? <laughs> oh man. Right. It's shovel it's shovel season for the Soprano family because they buried this man. They oh, buried no. him. Oh, uh, even his girl, his girl, man, like his ride or die chick. Even she was like, "Oh, you just don't want to fuck. Your back's broken. You just don't want to fuck." I'm like, damn, he can't even get support from his ride or die chick. Damn, she she could have said, "Oh, I'm sorry, baby. Maybe next time." Well, she could have said anything, but she said that shit. I'm like, hmm. No wonder why he went all mad on uh, Dickie. <laughs> that was the tipping point. That was like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. That was it. That was it. She didn't say that to him. He, uh, Uncle Dickie, Dickie, Motosanti might have lived at the end of the film. But because she said that shit, he had to go. She charged him up, bro. <laughs> she charged him up, man. Oh, my goodness, dog. Bro. Oh, man. She, yep, that was it. That was a spark. So on a scale of one to ten, if we talking about pettiness right here, bro, Uncle Junior had to be on a ten, man. His level of pettiness had to be a ten, right? Oh, most def. Most definitely, man. I mean, yeah, dog. Like the fact that he went through what he did and in the end felt happy about it. <laughs> Got the satisfaction from it, like Uncle J- Uncle Uncle Junior is a is a real piece of work, man. Like <laughs> I can only imagine what it was like during the regular TV series. Oh man, bro. <laughs> what I'm gonna say is that it was one hundred percent in character. Okay. Hundred <laughs> percent in character for Uncle Junior, dog. Like this man really had his cousin marked out because he slipped on some steps. And fucked up his back, man. Everybody was laughing, dog. Like, it wasn't... Like, Dickie wasn't the only one that was laughing at him, man. Right, right. But it's that jealousy, that envious. You know, I want to yeah. be the the smart, you know, the smart, wisecracking, good-looking, attractive. Everybody looks up to me. He he wanted mm-hmm. that spot. He wanted, he wanted some respect on his name that he wasn't getting. Ah, man. And he wow. and he and he and he found a found a way to to and he still probably wasn't get the respect, but it's a self satisfaction. Like yeah, you it's done. You ain't got it no more. You know, man. And and I like that. <laughs> I really do. I enjoy. And I mean, for whatever reason, I really enjoyed that part of it because I knew instantly as soon as as soon as Dicky ended up getting shot. With his back turned, I knew it was Junior. I knew it. You know what I'm saying? I knew. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I I knew that it was Junior that was involved with that because the level of pettiness, right? Like, if it was Harold, for example, or any of the black gangsters who are involved in this movie, they wouldn't have shot him in his back. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? There would have been a level. I'm not gonna say a level of respect, but it would have been a level of war. It would have been a level of animosity to where he wouldn't have got he wouldn't have went out that way if it was one of his enemies that did him that, like that, right? 
Right, only somebody right. who's only somebody who is close to you is gonna shoot you in your back because they can't look you in the eyes when they do it to you. <laughs> nice man, right you on the saying? money, right on the I fucking knew, money. I knew that it was Junior who was involved with that because that's the only way that that works, and it's in character. It's in line with the things that he said about some of these other people who he was speaking on earlier in the movie. Junior is one of the pettiest motherfuckers in the history of cinema, dog. Like, you want to talk about some heel heat? (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about some heel heat? Watch (laughs) The Many Saints of Newark and then watch The Sopranos and tell me Uncle Junior ain't a real piece of work, bro. Oh, you know man. I bet. I bet. And that just seems to be a family trait of that family, too. Taking yep. out your own family. Yep. So, the next thing I want to touch on here, man. The signature scene in this movie, bro. Like, Go ahead, man. I'm, the signature scene in this movie. The Many Saints of Newark is not a perfect film by no stretch of the imagination. There are only a handful of movies, in my opinion, that are perfect from beginning to end. But, in my personal opinion, the final scene of this movie is the reason why you go to the theater and spend your hard-earned money to watch cinema in a movie theater. To me, in my opinion, bro, and I, I, I I can't even front on it, this scene in this movie has been on my mind for an entire week where you see young Tony Soprano in a funeral parlor looking at Uncle Dickie in the casket. You you hear the first beats of the theme song to the Sopranos TV series. He looks down at his Uncle Dickie. You see the pinky go up. They make a pinky promise, dog. You hear those fucking drums kick in? You hear them drums? Oh, man. Man, what a moment. You hear them drums kick in, and you hear the voice of Christopher Maltesanti say, that's the guy, my Uncle Tony, the guy I went to hell for. And then it fades to black? Like, what are we talking about right now? Man. You... Go to the movies for moments like that. To me, in my opinion, me and my wife are sitting in the movie theater, right? We've watched every episode of The Sopranos, and that is something that is pleasantly surprising because I wasn't expecting that. That is one of the moments, as it happened, that me and her are sitting there and like, okay, wow, they really just pulled that off right there. I don't want to get out of my chair right now because I want to hear the entire theme song to the Sopranos TV show because that's the connection between this movie and that TV show. Right there. Boom. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I left you with a feeling, man. I left you with a feeling. like Even to a certain extent, for me, I never even heard that song before in my life. I'm Mm -hmm. watching it and I, I got a sense of feeling like, man, this is it. This is... This is the creation of a fucking monster right here. <laughs> That's the feeling I got. And then Man. once you told, once I watched the opening, you showed me the opening. It got me <laughs> reflecting back to that scene. I'm like, that made the scene even better. I'm like, I can only imagine 
being a fan of the show and then that scene happened that's like a right. that's a movie magic moment there that i couldn't you know I, I even if i saw it in theaters i couldn't capture that because i didn't see the sopranos so right you gotta be in the in, in, not even in totally in the loop but you gotta have watched at least a little bit of that source material to right. grasp that moment but, but like you were saying, though, even though you never actually watched the show, as you looked at that scene, you could kind of infer that this is an important moment in the life of the character of Tony Soprano. Yep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no like, doubt. I, I really can't describe it. Like I said, this was not a perfect movie by any stretch, but to me... That's one of those moments that I'm not going to forget. Seeing, because the pinky promise between a young Tony Soprano and his Uncle Dickie as he's a kid ended up coming full circle as he's looking at him in his casket and imagining giving him that same pinky promise. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the life we chose. This is the life we chose, and it might turn out I might end up in this casket. My life might play out this way, but this is the life we chose. I'm going to make you this pinky promise to tell you that I might do it better than you did it, but you still kind of showed me the rough. Like, you know what I'm saying? Man. Like, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is why these moments like that are why you go to the movie theater. You go to the movies in order to see moments that give you this kind of feeling here. If The Sopranos wasn't one of the best TV shows in history at all, and we didn't... All right, hold on. My bad. Let me back up for a second here. Go right? ahead, man. Go ahead. More, more inside baseball, brother. My bad. My bad. So, if you look up the actor of James Gandolfini, right, on Wikipedia which is not necessarily a reliable source, but you look up Wikipedia, you find online that the actor, Michael Gandolfini, was the one who discovered that his father passed away on vacation in Italy, right? Mm. And I was telling my wife this, and this is why it kind of resonated with me a little bit. I feel like that particular scene in that movie was not acting. You know what I'm saying? To me, me, there's a a surrealist element to that 30-second clip in that particular scene in that movie. When you understand that the actor who was portraying Tony Soprano found the man who is the real Tony Soprano was the first one that seen that he passed away. And in this movie, he's playing this part, right? Looking at the character who basically raised that character in that casket. He didn't have tears in his eyes in that scene. It was a scene of basically being sad, but kind of having an understanding of this is where my life changes, right? <clears throat> How realer does it get in that moment? Imagine being the actor in that moment on the set, acting out that scene. Like, what does that feel like? Damn, man, that that's some heavy shit. What is this? <laughs> Holy, what does that feel like? I'm I'm keeping it all the way a hundred right now. Like, mm. what does that feel like, right? And for me, 
again, with the inside baseball of watching the show and knowing how the life of the actor ended and how the son is playing that part of that character, that enhances everything for me. You know what I'm saying? That enhances, that enhances everything for me. That scene in particular transcends film, cinema, and acting, in my opinion. I could be reaching with what it is that I'm saying, but that's just the way I feel about it, bro. You know what I'm saying? Damn, man. That's a hell of a fucking statement, but that's a hell of a fact that you just mentioned. I didn't know that. I'm, exactly. I'm, a, I'm assuming the majority of the people who watch the movie doesn't know that as well. Exactly. So it's very surreal. It's very... like No wonder why you did get a feeling of... Yeah, yeah. You could... You could I you know I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but you could yeah. definitely get a sense that that was real, so to speak. It, you know, exactly, and that's the way that I felt about it. I felt that that was a real scene right there. I didn't really get the sense that there was acting that was going on there. There are so many different ways that you can kind of interpret that particular scene in that movie to where. You can always go back to that. It's a 30-second clip, but you can always go back to that scene and take something away from it because of the way that the actor carried it out with a facial expression. A facial expression. Mm. A facial expression. No dialogue, bro. A facial expression and the opening chords to a particular song can convey so many strong feelings and if you dig deep enough into it it opens you up to even feeling more things as opposed to just watching a gangster movie dog like right. <laughs> I, I hope i'm not reaching bro my bad man nah you in your bag right now man it did feel like a stamp it felt like yeah. a stamp it felt like an end like not in the sense of like a finality, so to speak, but it did feel like an exclamation mark, you know? Like, I don't know, man. Like, I almost got a sense of, uh, like, it was almost like the end of an era. Like, yes. a step of the way entertainment is run. Like, yep. that was it. Like, a bygone era. I felt like a, like the closing the door of a bygone era, so to speak, you know? That's what I got when I was first watching it. Man, and, and oh my goodness, bro. And and what I'm going to say is that they did a very good job with, with some of the background characters, right? You could watch The Sopranos now and see some of these characters that you've seen in this in this movie here and be like, oh, that was him. That's why he was acting like that. Oh, you know, whatever, right? Now, I do want to ask you this question here, bro. All when right. you finished watching the movie, did you feel like there was more that could have been done? Did you want to continue seeing these characters living in this world that was presented in the movie of the Many Saints of Newark? Yeah, I felt like I wanted to see more. I was like, I was very thinking like, okay, I need to start to Sopranos episode one. Like, I, I, I wanted to revisit this world. I wanted to see more of it. And, um... I got a sense that there was more to tell mm -hmm. and that TV series was it. You know what I'm saying? I felt like I need to check out episode one, but I also feel like Man, almost if they really wanted to revisit this 
in between <laughs> episode one and this moment. They could attempt to. Man. But I don't know, man. That's that's it's you know, it's hard to you know, it's hard to recapture certain things. And I think mm-hmm. the way they end this is a good way to have a send off for the franchise and have a send off to connect it to episode one of season one of the Sopranos. So oh, man. I did feel like they could do more, but it also felt like they shouldn't do more. Man, oh my, I couldn't have worded that any better. I could <laughs> not have worded that any better because, like, the only saving grace of this is that the creator of the actual TV show was the one that wrote the screenplay for this movie. If they wanted to do a sequel to The Many Saints of Newark and tie it into the Sopranos TV show, I'd be okay with that because mm-hmm. they handled this in a way that didn't insult the viewers of the actual TV show. I, I agree with that. But there is something to be said about leaving a little bit too early than leaving a little bit too late. And I think that with the gangster movie genre in general, there's a fine line that has to be met there. I think with gangster movies, even more so with action movies, there's a fine line between parody and then kind of taking it a little bit too serious. There are more bad gangster movies than there are good gangster movies. In my opinion, I don't know how, like, I enjoy gangster movies. My favorite gangster movies are The Godfather Part 1 and 2, Carlito's Way, Goodfellas, and then in the five spot, you can insert any other gangster movie that you want to put in there. I initially thought that this Sopranos movie was leaning more into the parody type of territory where you couldn't take it seriously. I was wrong on that. Mm. But there's only so far that you can take this before it becomes something that you're laughing at as opposed to something that you're entertained by. Right. It would be very difficult, and I'd be interested to see if they could pull it off. But I think it would be very difficult for them to bring back some of the same cast members that were in this movie and capture the essence of the TV show the same way that they did with this movie here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm keeping it a hundred, bro. You can only get Uh off. You can only like, like one of the one of the one of the one of the main like jokes within the Sopranos fandom is when Uncle Junior told Tony he had he he never had the makings of a varsity athlete. <laughs> <laughs> you can only get off with that one time. You can only get off with that one time in the first movie. You can only get off with the relationship between John Soprano and Livia Soprano one time. You can only get off with that once. You see what I'm saying? If you're going to write a sequel to the movie, we need fresh material that doesn't rely as heavily on the original source material as it did before. You see what I'm saying? Like right, in, a right. sequel, in a sequel, Uncle Junior can't tell Tony he's not a varsity athlete. In a sequel, John Soprano can't put a bullet through Livia Soprano's bonnet hairstyle. We need mm. other things to kind of go off of. 
Now, I'm interested to see if they can pull that off. I think that they can pull that off. But with this genre of movies, it's too easy to lean into the stereotypical parody type of things that you get accustomed to with gangster movies. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Damn, dude. It's tricky. Tricky is a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope to want to continue. I have to say. And and, and what I'm going to say is this. Did you ever see, did you watch the Breaking Bad movie, El Camino? Did you ever watch that one? No, I didn't watch it. Like, this is definitely better than that movie. El Camino, I enjoyed it, but we we have to weigh our expectations versus what we actually get. And the prequel route with this movie was the best way that they could have did it. In relation yeah. to another movie that I think we're going to review in Venom, with the Sopranos prequels, I think they can get away with one more. They can do one more. Ooh. And that's it. Okay. They can do one they can do one more kind of detailing the story of John Soprano and Tony Soprano's rise through the ranks in this particular setting before it kind of jumps the shark and diminishes the legacy of the actual Sopranos TV show. They can get away with one more. That's it. Because John Bernthal did enough for me to want to see him as John Soprano again. In my opinion, he did enough. Yeah, he did. He did. He had a good. That was a good role for him. That was a good role. He fit that shit nicely. Absolutely. And I do want to see Michael Gandolfini kind of, kind of like step into the shoes of Tony Soprano with some of the mannerisms and everything that his father did in that role. But they can pull this off one more time. Overall, in my opinion, I'm gonna say that the many saints of Newark. And it's fucked up, too, because I don't think we gave enough light to Dickie Montesante, but whatever, right? But overall, off the strength of the movie and off the strength of that final scene, I'm going to say 8 out of 10, bro. Yeah, I'd have to say for me as a fan, not as a fan, and me as a casual uh, fan of the American gangster film genre, um, I'd say... Yeah, 8 out of 10 for me as well, man. The cinematography was beautiful. That's mm-hmm. really great, great, well-crafted scenes. Some interesting camera work. Oh, man, the beach scene where Dickie killed his, his girl, his man. side piece in the water. Oh, it was cold, but it was beautiful at the same time. Man. Like, with the sun, the sun setting or sun rising and her, the waves crashing on him and the way he just absorbed that, what he just did. It was like it was like beautiful horror, so to speak. Like man. it looks pretty, but it's ugly what just transpired, you know? Man, um, man, man. Yeah, man. It was it was it was a really well crafted film. I have to say, very well crafted film. I wanna see more. The the setting, the period was perfect. There was nothing about it that screamed, Oh, that wouldn't be there, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or this wouldn't be there. Very I think very authentic, and I think that this one's gonna age like fine wine, and I think that hopefully later on, um, it can get the appreciation it deserves, and maybe it can find that group of people who want to check it out. Yep, eight out of ten, man. My last word on this here, brother. I'm just gonna say I think that Warner Media dropped the ball on this one. 
if there was any movie that came out this year that should have gotten a legitimate theatrical release, it should have been this movie right here. The furthest, the, the last thing that they should have done is release this movie on HBO Max the same day that it came out in theaters. Because clearly this movie was made with the intention on kind of like doing everything they could do to establish itself as separate from the TV series. And the yeah. fact that this movie is streaming on the same app as every episode as the TV series is to its detriment. Mm-hmm. Warner Media should have called the Audible and decided, you know what? We need to pull the plug on this. This is a movie that you're only going to be able to see in theaters. Suicide Squad was always going to make money. The Matrix more or less might make money. I, I still have a certain feeling about that as well. But King Kong versus Godzilla was going to make money. This was a movie that needed a theatrical release in order for people to understand why it was made. <laughs> right, you know what I'm right. <laughs> and the American gangster movie genre is all but dead, period. The closest thing that you're going to get to an American gangster story is Snowfall on FX. But that's a great TV show, but we'll get into that on another date. Eight out of ten, The Many Saints of Newark. I will be watching this movie again. The final scene of this movie was fucking magical. I'm not even going to get into the fan service parts of it because all you got to do to understand that is watch The Sopranos. And I highly recommend anybody who has the time and availability to watch The Sopranos. Like, share, and subscribe. Let us know how you feel about this movie. Venom? Nah, I'm, I'm still on Saints. I'm still on Saints. Okay. I got one. I got two takes on this. Let's get it. Let's get it. Okay. So throughout the film, the Italian mob family, mob monster, mm-hmm. uh, mafia, they're noticing that there is definitely a change in the political atmosphere in American society. Uh, there's there's a change of African Americans, black people, getting more rights. Um, when uh. Tony's dad gets back to the neighborhood after servicing <laughs> time in jail. He's highly upset that there's black people in the neighborhood. <laughs> so much to where he moved. He moved. <laughs> highly upset. Oh man. Highly fucking upset. Um, and I think I noticed something. Well, I'm not sure if it's really surface level or whatever, but there is a growing sentiment in this country where the white American male is losing control on the grip of the society. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. And these sentiments of saying like, oh, I want to protest this company because they support BLM. Or, you know, I'll blame the white guy because this, this isn't that. And I feel attacked or we're losing our grip. And the leftist is, is doing this. And they're telling us to take vaccinations. And this and that. There's a whole little bit of an uneasy feeling where it's like there's a, a feeling like grip of the control and power is being a little bit filtered out and 
throughout this film, it's very similar where you have Dickie losing control of Harold, who was basically a jobber for him and went into the drug game and the crime game on his own, became a rival, screwed his girl, took over his land, per se, took over some of his business. Um, you have black people moving into the, to the neighborhood. You have black people rioting against the police and trying to demand for justice and equality. And I think there's sort of an allegory going on in this film between the Italian mobsters feeling like they're losing their grip on their environment and maybe potentially watchers of this film who feel like they're potentially losing their grip on society as well. Subconsciously, maybe. I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I definitely feel like I hear it at work. I hear it on TV. I see it. You see it on the internet. There's kind of complaining or I will protest this because that or I will. That's absurd. And this, this and that. There's definitely an uneasy feeling. Uh, I would just say that there's a little bit of a hot, hot seat that the white American male is in right now. And I think that this movie kind of captures that a little bit in terms of the Italian mobsters losing their grip on their power structure. What do you think? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's some heavy talk right there. That's some heavy, heavy, heavy talk right there. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that again, that's, that's more inside baseball. You really gotta be reading between the lines to understand that because I don't consider I don't consider some of that subject matter to be woke, quote unquote, or politically correct. I don't consider any of that to be that because we're dealing with characters that are already cutting corners to get ahead. We're dealing with characters who are criminals and have made Mm -hmm. the agreement with themselves that this is the way that we're going to get it how we live. We're either going to be criminals or we're going to die. And there is some insecurity there. In that these guys, like, it's not a secret. All you got to do is Google certain certain gangsters like Bumpy Johnson in Harlem. You know what I'm saying? There's a great TV series called Godfather of Harlem. Mm-hmm. He tells his exploits in, in, in fighting against the American mafia there. Like, it's not a secret that the Cosa Nostra made great numbers of money off of the black community in areas such as Harlem, Kansas City, Detroit, Newark. You know, I just finished watching the TV series season four of Fargo that kind of dealt with some of that too. None of that is a secret. So the insecurity of men who are exploiting the system, fighting against the people they're exploiting is not a secret. The insecurity of white America of being marginalized is not a secret. None of that is a secret to anybody, right? Right. I do appreciate that this movie addressed some of that, and I I respect it, because at the end of the day, there's no honor amongst these. There's no no handwritten book that says that Italian-American gangsters are inherently better than Black or African-American gangsters because of the color of their skin. Because at the end of the day, you get caught, you're doing, nah, you're not necessarily doing the same time, but when you're out of balance, you're out of balance. 
Right. You know what I'm mm-hmm. So I agree with that. I, I do agree with that. And I respect that this addressed some of that subject matter in a way that wasn't too heavy handed mm. and wasn't necessarily meant to alienate people who were fans of the actual TV show. Right. You know it wasn't it wasn't too direct. It wasn't too in your freight in your face about it. Right. But there's definitely an element the there. It was telling yep. the truth. Yeah. It told the truth. And one thing I will I want to say about this here is that I do like I do like that even though obviously the you know the the most well known portrayal of um Frank Lucas was Denzel Washington an American gangster. But I do like that we got a cameo from somebody portraying the character of Frank Lucas kind of giving Harold that battery in his back, like, yeah, brother, you know what I'm saying? I got you. You know what I'm saying? I already got some issues with these cats here. Let me go ahead and let me go ahead and let me go ahead and sponsor you and put some money behind you to make sure that they know you ain't somebody that they need to be playing with. Go ahead. Do what you gotta do. I like that. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's a great point that you brought up there, brother. That's a great point. <laughs> Yeah, man. It's just, you know, there's there's some people out there in real life that are really like Dickie Multisanti right now. And you don't even know it. So mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, man. So, um, so you, yeah, you said yeah, <laughs> two points. Well, what we got next, bro? All right. So my other point is with this film, we know the box office box office returns on this film is abysmal, right? With the simultaneous relaunch. But the simultaneous launch on HBO Max and in theaters the same weekend mm-hmm. it dropped in the theaters the same weekend as fucking Venom 2. Oh, man. Slaughter. And Slaughter. And the next, literally the next weekend, dropped this weekend, was 007 No Time to Die, which we'll get into soon. <laughs> so with these kind of two films being released, there was this, this film was DOA in the theaters. Yep. DOA. Yep. And I think they released... One trailer for this film, and I would have to say that I think another observation we talked about nostalgia um, a bit a podcast ago is that I think when it comes to nostalgia, it really hits the 90s, 80s generation, mm-hmm. but I think it really more so encapsulates nerd culture rather than just pop culture. That makes any Ooh, sense. I agree. Because when it comes to nostalgia, it's mostly your Star Wars, your Star Trek, <laughs> your you know, a back to the future. It needs a nerd, it hits the nerd culture more so than your average person. I'll just right, say that. Right. Because they had Transformers before they fucked it up. They had Transformers in there too. Right, right. Ninja Turtles. Yep. You're right. Power Rangers. You're right. You're right. Because when you have the return of the Sopranos, right? Mm-hmm. It should be a big fucking deal, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. The return of the Sopranos. This should be a big deal. But it's not. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody fucking cares. You know what's yep. the main talk right now? What's that? Squid Games on Netflix. <laughs> 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 Squid Games on Netflix, and it's you know the Korean battle royale drama on top of the world right now, and I'm happy for them because you know from what it seems like it's a great show, and 
it's not you know a Korean show to hit the worldwide stage like this is incredible. It's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Unprecedented. And Netflix, Netflix kind of needed something to get back on the board in the streaming wars. They did. They did. Yep. And here's the thing. Uh, ten years from now, they decide to do a Squid Games movie. No <laughs> one's going to fucking care. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm, nobody's going to care? Nobody's going to care. Ten years from now, they decide to do a Squid Games prequel movie like The Sopranos is doing right now. No one's going to care. They're going to move on to the next thing. I think... Mm. I think that when it comes to this nostalgia shit, it's only for nerd culture, and I don't think it really applies to, like... Like, right now, they just did a Different World remake, right? Why? They did it. Is anyone talking about it? Does anybody right, care about right, it? Right, right, right. Because they're doing, a, they're doing a remake of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Peacock. And, I mean, it's on Peacock, so who cares? <laughs> right, it's on Peacock. I, I just think that when it comes to certain things, like, I don't know, man, I mean, I'm just being picky about it, but I feel like the nostalgia hit is not enough for some of these shows. It's not enough for uh, some of these things that are not typically in nerd culture. I think that uh, mm-hmm. I think that people move on to the latest and greatest thing fast and in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if it's outside the nerd culture. So I, I don't think it's enough for certain shows, you got to read the room a bit for certain platforms right. that you're going to have to deliver more than just like, oh, I don't care. You know, uh, it could be the biggest thing in the night. Baywatch. Big as hell back in the day. <laughs> they put Movie, the rock in Baywatch. They put so. the rock in there, man. Zach Efron. And I mean, they made their money off of it, but nobody really cared. People nope. went to see it, but nobody cared about Baywatch. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody- that was a money grab. Twenty One Jump Street was a better revamp remake than Baywatch was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just basically saying that the Sopranos era is, is definitely done. Um, right. There's definitely an exclamation mark on that type of entertainment. That's mm-hmm. done. Um, and I just think that whenever we kind of redip ourselves into certain films. You got to read the audience. You got to read the room a little bit. I think people move on to the latest and greatest thing. Right now, Squid Games on top of the world. Next month, it could be completely something else different. And no one will, be, will back and say, well, Squid Games are still better. No one does that. <laughs> when these streaming shows hit, no one, does, no one says, you know, uh, Loki came out. No one really is out there saying, well, you know, WandaVision was better. No one, no one, no one says that. Everyone enjoys it and moves on to consumes the next thing. And you know know? what? That's a great point that you brought up because I mean, a year from now, a year from now, the Squid Games will be blasé. Right, right. You know, it's just trends, man. And a year from now, I still will never have watched it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? A year from now, I still will have not actually sat down and watched. But you're making a good point, man. And that kind of highlights everything that I was kind of alluding to before, you know, with with the gangster movie genre in general. I don't know that there are enough people that appreciate the storytelling aspects of it more so than just the shock value of it. You get on Twitter 
if you get on Instagram, you get in whatever these forums are, nobody, mm-hmm. we're not really entertained by these stories of people breaking the law because, you know what I'm saying? Motherfuckers break the law every day, bro. Like, motherfuckers yep. break the law on Instagram every day of the week and may you, or may not get caught. May you can watch it live. Exactly. You know, there's a part of me that is a little bit bothered by that for different reasons. There's a particular TV series that is on stars right now that I'm mm. not, you know, I'm not really going to mention that at this time, but we'll, we'll discuss that on a later podcast, but I'm not really inter anyways, <laughs> anyways, anyways, yeah, man, that's my long take. story short, long story short, I respect that opinion that you got there. And the many saints of Newark was an excellent film. And it's just unfortunate that we are where we are kind of between the pandemic and also between the nature of entertainment consumption kind of being a little bit different because I feel like if this movie would have came out maybe like 2018, 2019, the perception of it and the impact that it might have had would be a little bit different because that that fucking team with the pinky with the pinky promise in the casket, dog. Like that's 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 a heavyweight that's a heavyweight scene right there, dog. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. I agree that's, with you completely. 2017, 2018, 2019, it definitely would have made a bigger impact. He- yeah, man. For real, for real. Facts, facts. Big facts. All right. There's one more thing I want to say with the Saints of Newark as far as overall gangster movies go. I... To me, this wasn't better than The Godfather. It wasn't better than Goodfellas. It probably wasn't better than Casino as well. But I put this in the same category as I'll put a movie like Bronx Tale. A Bronx Tale was a coming-of-age gangster movie that revolved around the relationship of a young man and somebody who was already familiar with this lifestyle. Honestly, the the Saints of Newark and Bronx Tale kind of have a lot of similarities, dog. I don't know if you've seen that movie before or not, but... Um, like a, a Bronx, yeah, a Bronx tale kind of deals with some of the racial elements in New York City as well. The end of the movie involves the death of a gangster and a young man who is kind of trying to make a decision. But it, it's more of a coming of age story mixed in with some of those elements as opposed to a first person view of that lifestyle. There, um, is it better? than A Bronx Tale, I don't know, because A Bronx Tale really wasn't, to me, that's my least favorite gangster movie if I'm comparing it to A Carlito's Way, Casino, Mm. Goodfellas, Scarface even, and a lot of people hate Scarface, believe it or not, bro. A lot of people (laughs) online hate Scarface. I I I watch Scarface once a year, every year, bro. Every year, I watch Scarface on New Year's Eve. I think it just become trendy to hate on it. Because, I mean, it's been overexposed. So Oh, yeah. Because, anything that's overexposed know, will gra- gather some hate. Right. Because, you know, like in the early 2000s, in the early 2000s, everybody was a fan of Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everybody loved 
Scarface in the early 2000s because all of the rappers yeah. were, were, were made reference to Scarface. If but you now, didn't have a Tony Montana shirt, you were lame as fuck, man. Oh, bro. I remember going to the state fair. I remember going to the state fair and I won like a Tony Montana poster. <laughs> and, and I won a Tony Montana or either me or my brother won a Tony Montana poster and hung that shit up on the wall bro like every you right the Tony Montana t-shirts was fucking terrible too dog like, but now all of a sudden everybody hates Scarface I watch Scarface every New Year's Eve bro I don't go out on New Year's hell yeah so I watch Scarface every New Year's Eve but anyway I think that the Saints of Newark is going to fall somewhere in between a Bronx Tale and uh, uh, maybe Carlito's Way. Okay. I, I love Carlito's Way. I think Carlito's Way is probably better than Scarface, but it came out in 1995. And I mean, it's not popular. The only thing that's more popular than Bastion Scarface is dissing movies that came out in the nineties. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I got there. True bro. sentiments, I'm, man. True sentiments. I, I, I love Carlito's way, but yeah, that, that's that's all I got on. <laughs> word, man. Word, word. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. That's the bottom line. H. Why? Why? That's the bottom line. It is October 11th, 2021, and this past weekend we had the final Daniel Craig James Bond movie, 007, No Time to Die, that was theatrically released only in theaters. And I didn't get to see it yet, simply because my age is catching up with me, I meant to see it Friday night, got off work, got a haircut, went home, racked out. Went to Bush Garden Saturday, came back Sunday, pretty much just napped the whole day and did the podcast on Sunday. And today is the same thing. So, yeah, man. man, that shit catches up to you. So I didn't get a chance to see it. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna see it at some point. But uh, you know, you got to see it on Saturday while I was at Bush and um, three hour runtime, man. Final installment Ooh. for Daniel Craig. This is it. This is the finale. This is the end of an era. How did it go, man? All right, so I think we'll um, we'll go spoiler free. We'll go spoiler free on this one, bro. All right. Um. So overall, like we had a very interesting conversation about the the Double O Seven character, the series of movies, all of that. A very good conversation that we had last year, just kind of breaking down the importance of that character and that property in film and all of that good stuff there Mm -hmm. and as we got to the topic of the current james bond the two of us kind of wrapped our heads around it and came to the realization that yes you know they're doing as good as they can with this character but it's clear that there are formats and blueprints and things like that that have been followed in order to make each of these movies in this modern era, going all the way back to Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, 
and now no time to die. Overall, before I get into the movie here, I do want to say that <laughs> coming into this, Daniel Craig unofficially, officially, in my opinion, was two and two. His record as James Bond was two and two. Mm. Two good movies, two relatively bad and forgettable movies. The scoreboard read going in. to it casino roy quantum of solace and <laughs> specter were on the more negative side with, with specter just to kind of rehash what we were saying before the mistake that was made there was trying to which is something that he was a standalone sean connery for the most part was a standalone roger moore was in nine movies but i'm sure that those were also standalone so it was unique to this version of bond that each movie was meant to be connected even though there was some retconning going on. There. Right. So going into No Time to Die, which was a movie that I waited two years. <laughs> I waited <laughs> two years to be able to see this in theaters. And I'm very glad that they didn't do some same day streaming on Peacock or anything like that. Oh, Lord. You got these people saying they should have released it on Amazon Prime to get more money. Yeah. No. No. Like, I'm, I'm very pleased that Universal, MGM, I'm glad they stuck, to, they stuck to their guns and held this out for as long as they could because the theater was packed when I went to see it on Sunday. Now, getting into this here, with everything that I just said about some of these movies kind of being derivative and inspired by other more popular movies or themes in cinema at the time, I would be remiss to say that No Time to Die didn't do that with this particular movie. Mm. And it's not the worst thing in the world as long as it's done in a way that highlights the character and the actor. For this movie, I'm going to say this is more akin to the story of a man who is past his prime trying to get it done for the last time. Old Man Bond is what you said in the text. Old Man Bond should be the alias for No Time to Die. And it is mm. perfectly fine because we know that Daniel Craig is now in his 50s, I believe. He's a middle-aged actor who's still a very talented actor. We know that it's been almost 20 years. Um, Casino Royale came out in 2006, I believe. We know... yeah. <laughs> um, we know that there have been some ups and downs in this series here so there's something that kind of adds to it there's an added level of mystique or added level of intrigue when you Wait, know almost absolutely that's the word i was looking for 
there's an added level of all of that when you know going into this that this will be the last time you see an actor who has become synonymous with a certain character give their last performance as that character. If it sounds like I'm describing the movie Logan, (laughs) (laughs) if it sounds like I'm describing that movie to describe No Time to Die, it's because I kind of am, but that's okay because if you're going to be a derivative of a different movie, you need to be a derivative of one that was actually pretty good. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and you'll understand kind of the things that I'm getting at when you actually get around to seeing this movie. Um, to get into the plot here, what I'm going to say is that it is very good that this movie did not come out in 2020. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Very, a little bit of similarities. Uh, huh? A little little too close to reality here a little bit. Bro. And <laughs> oh man, like it I'm I'm gonna say Universal Studios and all of them, they had balls like not doing reshoots and kind of reworking the actual <laughs> plot to this movie. I'm I'm gonna say Holy that. Shit. It's <laughs> It doesn't kind of, it doesn't go full-fledged kind of pandemic and everything like that, mm-hmm. but there are certainly elements to the plot that will make your mind kind of go outside, that'll give you a couple thoughts going throughout this movie, you know, not to so spoil... My bad. Go ahead, brother. Oh, I was just going to say, so you're saying we're going to get some uh, Illuminati breakdowns and No Time to Die on YouTube. Gotcha. Okay. Absolutely. hundred percent. Absolutely. And, and, you know, hopefully some of that bullshit can be avoided to actually appreciate, you know, a pretty quality 007 movie. Now, the separation that I'm going to say here is that it didn't go full fledged science fictional, you know, <laughs> the, the P word was only used one time. Throughout this movie, the word mm. pandemic is only used once throughout this movie. I don't know if there were things that were cut out to kind of avoid that. The Q word is only used one time throughout this movie. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, and that's not really the central theme. The central theme of this movie isn't, you know, a virus that can that can harm millions of people like that's the plot. That's what our villain is looking to accomplish. But this isn't the story of James Bond fighting science. Like, it's not that. This is really the story of James Bond trying to be a hero, which kind of runs counter to him being an operative for MI6. It runs counter to him having a license to kill and everything like that. And it does kind of provide a little bit of insight into the portrayal of that character. If you go back to Casino Royale, the perception of James Bond is that he's a killer. If you point him in that direction, he's going to get it done. He's going to drink. He's going to enjoy the company of a beautiful woman, and he's going to continue about his business. He's not a hero more so than being a professional. If him Mm. saving someone's life, if him saving someone's life coincides with the mission he has to carry out he's gonna do it in this movie you see 
him come to the realization that the mission should always be to save whoever it is that I can save. You know, plenty mm. of people die. Plenty of people have died in very violent and graphic type of ways throughout the series of these movies. And each time it happens, he kind of has to either shrug it off or give the appearance that is not significant to him. This is the first portrayal of this version of James Bond where he has compassion for things happening to people that come as a work hazard of being an MI6 agent or a licensed contracted killer, if you want to call him that. Gotcha. And that's important. It's important because, you know, 15 years as a character, you want to see that kind of character progression, you know? Um, <laughs> something else I'm going to address here. Uh, in years past, you have what they call the Bond girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how are you addressing the Bond girls in the year 2020 and 2021? The Me Too era. And what I'm going to say is that they did it perfectly. It was addressed perfectly in relation to what it was before. Because in years past, we always knew an attractive woman is going to be casted in this movie or in one of these James Bond movies for one of two things to happen to her. She's going to be attracted to James Bond. They're going to do some activities with each other. And that particular Bond girl may or may, may, or may not end up dying before the end of the movie. Right. In this movie, the change in the character of James Bond is also reflected in his relationship to an attractive woman who's there working for the CIA. And I like that they didn't make it an out front kind of overt thing to where it's like, oh, well, he's just going to have sex with her now because she's an attractive woman. And that's all she's there for. Like, it doesn't even get discussed. Topic doesn't even get discussed in a way that makes you uncomfortable or anything like that. So mm. I like that. It's not woke. It's not any of these things that people thought that it would be because it's professional. He's there as a professional. He's there as an older guy who basically doesn't have time for this shit. <laughs> right right get in and get out right i got you he ain't got time for this shit the years of him kind of enjoying this lifestyle of you know being this jet setting sex symbol of a secret operative them days are over with you don't got time for that bullshit no more you know if we being honest here how many women has the character of james bond already been with to the point where there's no more excitement out of trying to derail the mission in order to enjoy yourself on that physical level. Man, I like Pierce Brosman in a nutshell, his whole era. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, man. I'm like, can you shoot something? Can you punch? <laughs> Kick? Shit. <laughs> no, I digress. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. No, no. <laughs> and I like that you can kind of infer that without them telling it to you through dialogue or through him having to be embarrassed about something. You know, there's no shaming James Bond for the way that he used to be because you can see that he's already a different man than what it was he was before. Right. I, 
that's that's subtlety right there. That's subtlety in the writing because under any other circumstance, you probably would have had James Bond kind of being dressed down by a female character telling him how he's a womanizer and he was never a good man to begin with. So I like the approach that was taken there because it made sense. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, made, it made sense. Now, I want to talk about the villain here for a second. Oh, um, shit. Here we go. Um, Rami Malek. Okay. Definitely a talented actor and most definitely put in as well as a performance of a James Bond villain as he could throughout this this movie here. I'm going to say that he was probably the least interesting part of the entire movie, in my mm. opinion. Okay, okay. The least interesting part, only because there's there's a formula with, with, with some of these James Bond villains now, and his intentions behind what it was that he was doing were a little bit vague, and towards the end of the movie, cliche. I'll be honest, yeah, very cliche, very cliche. And it didn't really make all that much sense, if I'm being all the way honest with you. Initially, you see that he's focused on one particular task. He's focused on getting, re getting revenge on a certain group of people that did something to him in the past. And he's using his skills as a killer in order to carry out that task. But when he has the weapons at his disposal and he's already accomplished the task that he set out for, it's almost like he's doing the thing that he's trying to do at the end of the movie because he's fucking bored. Ah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it kind of felt like. And when you see it, you'll kind of understand what I mean there because we can't go from wanting to take out Spectre to wanting to, you know, <laughs> be, the, be the man on top of the hill, per se. That, okay. doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But sidebar here, I do like that through one way or, other, or the other, they made it clear that Spectre was a bad movie. They made it clear. Everything associated to Spectre as an organization and even a word. Each time that the word Spectre is uttered in this movie, you are meant to believe that these guys are irrelevant. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. They, they, they buried them. Absolutely. As they should have, <laughs> because that was not a good movie. Everything right, right. that had anything to do with that movie was put in its proper perspective and treated as if it was irrelevant and not significant to this movie. Um, That's what's up. They at least had the self-acknowledgement to do that. Yep. And, and I, I dig that. I dig that because, oh, my God, that was, man, outside of Batista in that movie, that was not a good movie, dog, at all, man. Um, no wonder why he went crazy and didn't want to come back for the role, <laughs> Daniel Craig. <laughs> oh man! And then, oh shit! <laughs> um, addressing the elephant in the room, the new 007. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'm gonna say a lot of you fucking guys out there 
had elevated your blood pressure for no reason. Uh, a lot of spoiled milk. A lot of spilled yep. milk. Yes, they elevated their blood pressure for no reason at all, dog. Like, completely, completely made fucking idiots and jerk-offs out of themselves here with the way that they behaved in relation to the reveal that there would be a female 007. Because uh, they're, they're all patting themselves on the bat right now and making videos of why it flopped in the box office. Right, and, and yeah. none of that has anything to do with any of the shit that these fucking guys are talking about. Like, the portrayal, the performance by the actress, and I don't want to mess up her first name. I, I It's her name... Uh, Lashana Lynch. Okay, Lashana Lynch. Um... You know, who kind of did she did her thing in Captain Marvel as well. Um she as as this female secret agent lethal killer who's capable of holding shit down, she held shit down. Her screen time that she got in this movie was perfect for the type of supporting character that she was casted to be here. She was competent, confident in everything that she was able to do. Again, there was no there was no monologuing on her end of why she deserved to be James Bond. It was Ooh. all action. It was all action. Mm, um, the way it her. should be. Yep, it was it was all action. There was none of this bullshit of her, you know, explaining to M and Q and Money Penny why she's been with MI6 for this long and I'm the youngest ever. No, no. When it was time to get the job done, bro, she got the job done. And they, even, yeah, gave her, they even gave her a one-liner in there that um that hit home, man. <laughs> <laughs> they, they gave her a one-liner in there to hit home, man. And speaking of the one-liners, they are in this movie. And James Bond movies have become accustomed to the one-liners, but they felt the most natural with Daniel Craig in this movie than I think they felt in any other movie that he was in because it fits, you know? When you're an old guy and you're too old for this shit, you're going to be making one-liners because you want to get it fucking over with. You want to get this shit done. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. He's not taking everything too seriously because he knows that it's time to get in and get out. I do want to give away one spoiler here, bro. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. One spoiler, and this is the new trend in some of these movies here, especially relating to the action type. The movies that are meant to appeal to the male audiences and also get females interested as well. So, in Avengers Endgame, what was done to add stakes to Robert Downey Jr.'s character arc? Throughout that movie. Ah, yeah. they gave him, became a family man, like Guile said. <laughs> <laughs> and Logan, <laughs> and Logan, same scenario, right? Right, right. With, with Bond, the twist in this movie is that you've never seen or even thought you would see that character in that type of situation. So it mm. gives a new dynamic for him to have to address and deal with. And it also gives us as the audience, a new reason to be interested in what it is that he's doing. 
because it runs counter to everything we thought we knew about James Bond. And it yep. works. It works. <laughs> if, if these things that we've always seen him do, but now it has a purpose. The purpose behind it is really about. Let me see what, what, what this is like on the other side. I'm doing this, this dark and get to the other side and try to be clean, which is something I've never been before. So mm. we're following in modern cinema. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Especially, especially when we're talking about characters who have aged into those roles. We know that in real life, Daniel Craig is married to Rachel Weiss and has a family. So it makes him even more relatable to the character. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's just a natural, a natural progression of the character. It's just, you know. And I like it. I like it's, it. It's good. It's good. 20 years in a row, the character should have some growth, should have some kind of resemblance yep. of like, okay, what naturally would happen to a person like that? You know what I'm saying? So. Yep. And it's not going anywhere. I think we'll probably see this continuing on forth with a lot of Hollywood movies. I'm looking at you, Mission Impossible, whenever you come out, or Top Gun, whenever you oh, come out. Shit. Man, man, man. Oh, or my Five or four, whatever number they're on. Oh, my goodness. Like, and, and I, I think the difference between, okay, and my bad. I know I'm jumping around a little bit. No, I'm you're trying good. to just give a comprehensive perspective on this movie here. Like, overall, when you think about the character of James Bond, in comparison to some of the more testosterone-driven type of characters, you think about a John McClane, you think about, you know, some of these uh, Rambo, you think about some of these high-fuel, testosterone, very masculine, tough guy type characters. And throughout the years, I'm thinking about this on the fly here. Did you ever view James Bond as fitting into that category there? You knew he's a tough guy. You know that he's lethal. You know that he's, you know, a, a, an attractive man as far as women are concerned. You know that he's sophisticated. But I never got that high fuel testosterone type vibe off of that character throughout everybody who portrayed that character of James Bond. Like, what do you think about that? Not until Daniel Craig. No. Nah. Not until Daniel Craig was doing parkour and Casino Royale and all the action sequences he was doing. Throwing mm -hmm. hands, throwing feet, just gun blazing, escaping. Like, nah. Sean Connery, nah. I mean, Pierce Brosnan, nah. Um, you know what I'm saying? The other, the other cats that played the role, they were suave. Mm -hmm. They were smooth. They were slick. Um, you know what I'm saying? They, they did it in a way where it's minimal effort, right? Because mm. they were so good. You know, minimal effort. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not even trying. I'm at like forty percent, and I'm getting the mission done, right? Um, Yo. yeah, dog. <laughs> no, you're right. That's a fact. That's a fact. Right, right. And I just think with Daniel Craig's portrayal, you can see him struggling. You can see him. He's going on one hundred and ten percent, and he's taking damage. You know what I'm saying? He's getting bloody. He can, he huh? can. You know, he's got uh, stamina. You know, he's getting tired. He can get weak. He can get shot. Um, you know what I'm saying? Can look the odds can be stacked against him a little bit. It wasn't until Daniel Craig till I got that feeling like, oh shit, this guy's um you know, he's he's the most brawling, 
James Bond we ever got. Right. And I can place him in there with a, you know, with a Rambo. Not on the same. He can be in the conversation. He's not on the same level, but I think he can be put a little bit in the conversation. I, I get what you're saying. Like, like he had the most physicality out of everybody who carried out that part. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, he looked like, <laughs> even though he had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was like, even this, like his height, he's the only man casted. And I learned this in a sociology class that I took, which is crazy. But like Daniel Craig is the only James Bond actor under six feet tall. Mm. <laughs> but I get what you're saying, though. Like he looks like he looks like he would knife you if he needed. To. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, yep. Yep. You know what I'm saying like like Sean Connery. Sean Connery would hit you with the silencer. Right. Roger Moore would hit you with the karate chop to the back of the neck. You know, Pierce Brosnan would snipe you. But Mm -hmm. it felt like Daniel Craig would get right up on you and knife you if he really needed to. If the most (laughs) quiet way, if the most quiet way to get you up out of there was between the PPK, the sniper rifle, and the, the quick and dirty with the knife, he would choose to do the knife every time, just cause, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, that's a good one. That's a good yeah. one, man. <laughs> and, and no, like, and, and to me, that's cool because when you see him doing that in this movie, there's an added purpose to it because of some of the things that I was kind of, kind of mentioning before. There. Um. Now, moving on here, I am just gonna say that the the villain the reveal that we thought we got a different kind of reveal in this movie which is okay they mm. learned a lesson from specter with the blowfield reveal that we knew was coming from all along we knew that this guy was going to be blowfield and they played us like we didn't know it was going to be him right this isn't a spoiler but we thought we were going to see dr no in this movie we do not see Dr. No in this movie. Mm. I, I don't okay. know. I don't know if maybe that was originally floated. If the idea was that, you know, our, our main villain was going to end up revealing himself to be Dr. No. But I'm glad. Excuse me. I'm glad that that's not what happened. There are references and allusions to the original First 007 movie, Dr. No, with some of the set pieces, some of the costumes, Mm. everything like that. But they never pulled the trigger on it to where it was a one-for-one, this is who he is, or any of that. And I like that they did that. That's how you do fan service the right way. You let us think that it's going to be happening. You let us do the fantasy booking in our own head, but you don't confirm it. And then take the joy out of us thinking that we are smarter than everybody else in the movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, man. Okay. (laughs) So I appreciate that, too. That's kind of my last word on that. Overall, I highly recommend that you go see this movie when you got time, bro. This is I don't know if it's better than Casino Royale. I'm going to say. This is equally as good as 
Skyfall, in my opinion, but I don't know if it's better than Skyfall. You get what I'm trying to say? Like, mm. I could watch Skyfall any day of the week. That movie came out in 2012, and it came out like at the perfect time. <laughs> right, right. So this is like a number two tie for number two. No time to, to die. To, to me, yeah. And I would definitely need to rewatch it because they avoided a lot of things that I didn't think they were going to avoid. I went into this thinking this was going to be the Fast and Furious James Bond movie. And I was pleasantly surprised that it didn't turn into that. It's okay if this movie is a little bit more similar to Logan or even that last First Blood movie that nobody went to fucking watch. It's okay if it's a better version than that and at least a similar version to the best that it's trying to aspire to. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not yeah. always bad to be a derivative of something as long as you do it in a way that reflects quality and time that you're actually putting into it. Spectre failed because it was a terrible version of Captain America Winter Soldier. <laughs> everything, version. everything came together. The way that the movie ended is, 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 is something that might stick with everybody for a little bit. Overall, I'm not going to Overall, for me, in my opinion, I said this was a four mic movie. If I'm going on a scale of one to ten, I'm going to say somewhere between eight, probably about eight and a half out of ten for me. All right, man. Eight and a half out of ten. Damn, damn. That's that's a good score. That's a good score. There's only a handful of movies that are perfect. A movie does not have to be perfect for it to be good or possibly be great. And as time passes by people are only going to remember how this series of movies ended and it ended on a very good note props to daniel craig he deserved much better than quantum of solace and specter but they did a lot more right with this movie than what they did wrong that's what's up man that's what's up my last question for you about this Uh how long do we wait till the next one oh man what are you thinking? How long is it going to take for us to digest what Daniel Craig did with this franchise before we're ready to move on and recast with the next James Bond iteration? Respectfully, I think I think we need to give this at least at least four years. Four years? I mean, That's fair. Because I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think here. Um, uh, Casino Royale came out in 2006. Quantum of Solace dropped in 08. Uh, Skyfall was 2012. And then Spectre was 2015. So we waited six years that was supposed to be five in between Spectre and No Time to Die. I think that before we start talking about a reboot or recast, like this character deserves at least five good years before we go in and try to cast somebody even younger and tougher and meaner as James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we need that. And and what we also need is that animated series on Amazon Prime. That's what we also need. We we also need that to satisfy 
the urge that we're not getting with James Bond kind of being seen on live action. Ian Fleming wrote so many books that they can do an entire animated series based on the books alone. We talked about this already, bro. Yeah, man. <laughs> we did, man. It's a good fantasy booking, man. I hope uh, Jeff Bezos is listening and get that shit going on as soon as possible. And, bro, you might even need to drop that on YouTube. That was some quality shit right there. But this was a this was a good movie. It was worth the wait, in my opinion. If this was a bad movie, this review wouldn't have taken that long, and I would have shit it all over everything that happened. So, overall, <laughs> I'm a... I am quite impressed with what it was they were able to accomplish here. So, yeah, eight and a half out of ten, bro. Damn right, man. Damn right. For all you listeners out there who saw 007 No Time to Die, what did y'all think about the movie? Did it live up to your expectations? Did it disappoint you? What do y'all think about Daniel Craig's legacy as the character of James Bond? Let us know in the comment section below. And with that, we're out. Peace. Mm -hmm. side of things we have the release of venom 2 let there be carnage sony flexing a little bit of a little bit of box office muscle and trying to see if they can either hit lightning in a bottle twice or hit the jackpot twice whatever terminology you want to use for this attempt at um getting some good box office return on this character that may or may not be a little bit a little bit washed at this point in terms of interest and everything like that. I know you were in the theater to see this on release day. You went to see it night one? Uh like night two or three on the weekend. Yeah. Okay. So um before we get into your review, what was the um what was the crowd turnout for Venom 2? Uh the crowd it was pretty good. The theater was fairly packed. Mm -hmm. um from the crowd reactions people were enjoying the film throughout the film and um i i'd have to say it, it reminded me of like the pre-pandemic era when i was watching okay. this movie and, and that, was mean, a, that was a bonus that was a plus i respect that i like that so let's get uh let's get right into it here man let's get right down to business <laughs> here we, we had right. a discussion we had a discussion about what this movie was going to be capable of doing I fall into the camp that Venom 1 was not a good movie, per se. It was good for what they were trying to accomplish. I didn't think that they could go back to the well twice. So, in your opinion, good sir, what did we get with Venom 2? Alright, so Venom 2. A uh, little back background on me. It's a big-time Spider-Man fan. I'm a Spider-Man aficionado type. So Venom, the first film, I did not like it at all. I did not enjoy it. I fucking hated it. It was uh, a <laughs> it was a trash film for me. I think I give like a five out of ten. I have no desire to see that film ever again. Um, I didn't care for the Jim Carrey mask meets Spawn aspect of it. Like I just wasn't rocking with it. But I thought it was 
for Sony to be able to make a Venom movie without <laughs> Spider-Man or Peter Parker and make over almost a billion dollars in the box office, you got to give them props for for the attempt and being successful at it. So they put their they they put their nuts they put their nuts right on the table, dog. Right on the table, dog. Oh man, they did, they did. So we got Venom two. Let them be. Let there be carnage. They casted Woody Harrelson as Cletus Cassidy, aka Carnage. They got Andy Serkis to direct this. And I gotta say, this is an hour and a half movie, and Andy Serkis does not want to waste anyone's time with this film. He got right to the point. He got you in. He got you out. There is no real plot to this film there is no real depth to these characters there is no real sense of like i don't know man there's like this is this is this is cheesecake film man this is a cheesecake film and the audience they know you want it for the cheesecake so this time they kind of cut off the trim off some of the fat they know you want to see tom hardy react in funny ways with the symbiote you know it's the tom it's the tom hardy symbiote show you know it's a, it's a two-man comedy special like a sitcom almost and they get you in and out i thought that uh i i never thought in my lifetime i would see car uh venom on a big screen entering a rave with with glow stick rave lights necklaces and wristbands around him walking around in a rave going on stage and saying that he's better off without eddie brock and okay. that I, I can be myself and drop in the mic and everyone cheering him. Like right, now, now, can I say one thing, though? Go ahead, man. The one thing that I'm going to say is that as corny as that sounds and as kind of as corny as that sounds, I do want to say that that is a lot better than I will eat your brains. That's a, that's a lot better than that's a lot better than the lethal protector you know what i'm saying eddie brock right. like to, like that's to me i'm not saying it captures the essence of what venom is because uh -huh. without spider-man venom is not interesting at all but i do like that they at least tried to make this fun and acknowledge that yeah this is fucking corny but it is what it is. So he says, I don't need Eddie Brock. To that extent, it's a break. Uh, the first half of the film is like a breakup, so to speak. The symbiote is ruining Eddie Brock's life, and he feels like he needs a break or he doesn't need the symbiote anymore. He mm -hmm. feels like, I can't live a normal life. You know, that whole heroic thing. Like, I'm done. I don't need you anymore. And the symbiote breaks up with them and goes to possess other people. Meanwhile, we have Cletus Cassidy. Uh, being sentenced to death for his crimes in the past, and he requests Eddie Brock to interview him. He leaves some clues for him to solve to find the bodies that he hid when he killed people as a serial killer. And the symbiote, while they were still together, Venom figures out the clues and they uncover the bodies. And Cletus Cassidy sentenced to death in jail. We get a little backstory that. While he was a teenager or whatever, he fell in love with this mental patient, Shriek, played by Naomi Harris, who you know from uh, the James Bond thing. series and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, <laughs> very, very good. That's what you call double dipping at the box office. Yes, sir. She double dipping. I'm glad she did, man. Getting that money. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, she's she's a love interest, and they they take her away from the mental ward that they were at. They put her in a uh, Ravencroft, and um, basically, the long story short, uh, Eddie gets triggered by something Cletus says. He kind of strangles him a little bit. Cletus bites bites at his finger. Some blood drips off his finger onto Cassidy's mouth, and there we get the birth of the symbiote carnage. On to Cletus Cassidy. So Cletus breaks out of the breaks out of the cell when he's about to get killed, and it's just <laughs> he's killing people. It's PG thirteen, so you don't actually see nothing too lethal, but everything's insinuated and everything's like, oh my gosh, this is shocking for PG thirteen, so to speak. Um, he literally starts like a jailbreak in the cell cells, and the, the the prisoners are rooting for him as he's killing security guards, and he's unlocking jail cells and he's just as the carnage symbiote um yeah long story short man at the end of the film the basically cletus wants to marry shriek they're in his wedding there's there's a whole this thing definitely appeals to a demographic you got shriek in a black goth wedding dress cletus cassidy in like a red suit and the visuals we get the call back to spider-man 3 they're in a church the finale takes place in a church they fight each other off. Shriek has the powers of like Black Canary. Um, eventually, <laughs> uh, eventually, the Carnage symbiote uh, gets attacked by Shriek because he pisses Shriek off. Whatever they don't have, they're not a uh, compatible duo. Like they don't have teamwork. So that's why Eddie, Eddie and Venom beat Carnage and Cletus because they have teamwork and those two don't. And um, Basically, uh, spoiler alert, uh, they kill Cletus. Venom eats him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, okay. So uh, with this I'm trying to rush through it as much as possible because there really is not nothing much to this film. It knows what it's trying to do. If you're that target audience, you're that Deadpool audience, you're going to love this film. If you love the first movie, you're going to love this one. This is not oh. going to entice anyone who didn't like the first film or is not interested in the superhero genre at all. Well, hold on, hold on. So let me, let me ask you this question here, right? All right, go ahead. So now this is what I'm trying to understand then is because I'm sure Woody Harrelson is hamming it up, man. Yeah. He's he's having a good time. You could tell he's having a good, he could play this role in his sleep. You know what I'm saying? And and, and the thing I want to mention here is like, um, I do, I do, this is what I know from watching the first Venom movie. This wasn't a scenario of like an X-Men Dark Phoenix where you're watching the movie and you could tell that the people in the movie didn't want to be in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is far from the craze. They're all hamming it up. They're all having a good time. I like that they know what they're doing with this one. They at least know we're going for cheesecake and they're aiming for that cheesecake. So right. everyone's having a good time with it. You got to be out of your mind to take this kind of thing seriously. Like you said, the lethal protector is not good source. There's, you know what I'm saying? The source material is not that great either. You know, like exactly. Yeah. Without Spider-Man, without, without Spider-Man, we can't get spawn as venom. We can't get venom as spawn. That wouldn't, that wouldn't work. That would be, that would be box office toxicity. If that's even, a way to describe something but mm-hmm. what i'm gonna ask you here what i wanted to kind of kind of say here is like 
is Woody Harrelson as Venom doing any? Is it fun? Or it, okay, obviously it's fun, but I'm sure that it's not memorable. It's not very. Um, is it better than Topher Grace in Spider Man Three? Sure, you know what I'm saying. If you wanna, yeah, he's got the look. Yes, he's hamming it up. He's doing the the buddy cop routine, so to speak, with the Venom symbiote. Um, well, no, no, I'm talking about Woody Harrelson as Carnage. My bad. Oh, not Woody Harrelson as Carnage. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Is is any of this considering that this is a one off and we're never gonna see Carnage again? at least for a very long time. Like, think about how long it took us to where we got to see Carnage in a movie at all. And the fact that, you know, this is a one-off is the portrayal of this character something that is going to cross over. Is this, or is this just going to be a footnote in a movie that, you know, you enjoy one time and don't really need to watch. The next time you watch Venom 2, you'll be watching it in clips on YouTube. Like, was there anything brought to the table with his portrayal of Cletus Cassidy that you can take home with you and come back to think on it like, damn, Woody Harrelson really did his thing? Or was it just kind of one of them things where, okay, well, it happened. This was, this was, this was as good as Carnage ever could have been. <laughs> yeah, more of the later. Yeah, this is good as Carnage has ever gonna been. There's nothing really to. He didn't break the genre. There's nothing really iconic about him as the character. I'll be honest with you. I mean, he did the role. He hammed it up, but it's not like memorable, like uh, like uh, like the Riddler and Batman Forever. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's not like a Jim mm-hmm. Carrey. Like you remember the you remember that performance, and it's funny as fuck. It was over the top. And you can remember it. This was kind of like very by the numbers for Woody. Uh, I'm not saying it's his fault. Um, it's just the material, man. The Carnage symbiote looks good. Uh, and the finale in the church is a cool fight scene in the church. Got a cool visual lightning, thunder in the background. We have a callback Spider-Man 3 with the bell tower. The That's bell's cool. ringing. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I actually, I was like, okay, okay. Y'all, y'all doing a little Spider-Man homage here without Spider-Man. But that's cool. I can appreciate that aspect a little bit with the callback mm-hmm. there. Um, but no, honestly, the Carnage symbiote is the star of that role, not actually the performance of Woody Harrelson. I would have to say it's the special effects. That's, mm-hmm. That is the lore of that character in this film. I, I It looks good. I think the voice is a little bit um, off. I feel like it's like the guy who auditioned for Venom, and he didn't get the role for Venom, and they gave him Carnage. I don't think it's uh, unique enough. It just sounds slightly off Venom. I'm so used to the 90s animated show. This is amazing. <laughs> and, that's, and I get it. It's not fair. It's, it's, not, it's fair. not fair. No, it's not. It's not. Um, I'm not saying that, like, that's a super high standard, but I like how in that they made a more distinguished voice from Venom. So, like, it's more higher pitched. It's more Joker-esque. And in this more, film... More, it's more demonic. More demonic, right? And this one doesn't have that demonic feel. It just feels like okay, this is like a little bit of a slightly off pitch version of Venom's voice acting. So, yeah, man. Um, I think one of the most iconic scenes in the film is when uh, Cletus uh, doesn't have the symbiote suit anymore, and he's kind of like, "You didn't tell them, Eddie, the whole story that I killed my mom and then because I was abused and this and this and this and that." 
And then uh, uh, Venom Symbiote says, fuck this guy, and just eats him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So they got their one. They got their one F word off. Right. The best moment in this PG-13 movie, huh? Yeah, they saved it for laughs. I got a laugh out of that one. That was, that was a good moment. The Venom was like, fuck this guy, and just eats him right there in the spot um, near the end. So that was that was a fun moment right there. Um, they got the one off. I mean, honestly, man, this is, um, you know what I'm saying? The first film, I would give like a four or five out of ten. This was like a six. This is... If you like that Deadpool comedy, this is your, you know, this is something you enjoy, that cheesecake uh, thing. There's nothing wrong with cheesecake. I think the only thing that was missing with this was like a some seductive shots of She-Venom or something like that to get the complete sweetness of sh- cheesecake. Was um, there an appearance <laughs> from She-Venom? Did She-Venom actually pop up? No, they, you know, they hinted at it, and then she said, uh, no, that was gross. I'm never doing that again. So they actually had a little self-acknowledgement that of the scene that took place in the first movie. So does, does Eddie possessed, Brock, but she didn't bad. get the symbiote suit. She got possessed, but she, she carried venom, but it didn't fully transform her. Okay. Did Eddie Brock get the girl at the end of the movie? No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> because oh. he's in life and all this and this and that, and he fucks up all his relationships, or whatever. Um, that's kind of the theme of the, of the film, but no, nah, she, she stuck with her fiance Oh well, she got engaged and she stuck with her fiance, uh, mm-hmm. and that was that. She she put her foot down, saying, "You know, despite all this, no, we're not getting back together." Oh man, my fiance. that's hilarious! That's hilarious, <laughs> right there, dog. He didn't get the girl, nah, man. He didn't get the girl. <laughs> that's, that's, I ain't gonna lie to you. That's pretty funny, right there, bro. <laughs> so they they went against the cliche there, man. So they did, they well, did, at least for that. So. And and this is interesting to me. The the thing that's interesting to me as it relates to Venom and just this whole enterprise that Sony has kind of embarked on here. I I like that um I like that they're willing to put it on the line. I like that they're willing to not take this too seriously. I like that Tom Hardy is committing to this role the same way that he's committed some more serious type performances. I like that. Uh, <laughs> um, there's just something about this that just feels so much like, okay, are we ever going to get to the point? Because I don't know if I've seen this yet. You know what I'm saying? I don't know mm-hmm. if Venom, even though that movie made a lot of money and Eminem put out a terrible song to commemorate that movie in 2018. <laughs> Venom, gonna gonna get him. Yeah. Oh man! Wow. <laughs> hey, but hey, you know what? I can't even lie, man. That 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 hits that that demographic, man. It hits that demographic, and it it fits that the theme of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a good match. So, good but match. this is this is the thing that I'm wondering here, though. Uh-huh. Has Venom has been? I don't know that Venom has. Crossed. I don't. I don't think Venom has crossed over into that mainstream popularity yet. You know what I'm saying? I still don't see people at the gym wearing Venom T-shirts. Mm-hmm. I still don't see that. I, I haven't seen that yet. The same way that I see guys wearing the Captain America Shield T-shirts at the gym, or seeing the kids wearing the Iron Man gear, 
or anything like that. I still feel as though this character is relatively underground. Like this isn't like when, when the Suicide Squad came out where there was that big hot topic kind of costume push. Right. So right. We, we talk about cheesecake. Is it still better served for this character to remain as an underground kind of thing that we can enjoy and laugh at? Or do you think that the goal is to try to get Venom into that mainstream popularity level of some of these other superheroes that we're seeing? Because in my opinion, I think the best route is to keep Venom underground, dog. It's better to mm. keep it underground, to me. Like, like, what do you think about that? Uh, what I feel about that is, is it better left underground? I mean, the first movie almost made a billion dollars. And the second movie, let's just say, if we weren't in the pandemic era, it probably followed the same same way. If not, it might have earned more. Who knows? You know, mm-hmm. it still made a good good return on the first weekend. So, with all that speaking, man, I really feel like they're attempting to make a mainstream. Definitely with the spoiler alert. I'll do a spoiler alert later with the uh, the the post credit scene. I think they're they're sowing the seeds to have them cross over. They wanted to be a main eventer. You know, he's a he's a mi- upper midder card, and they wanted to put mm-hmm. him on the main event. I think I they see. got plans to do that. Um, <laughs> I think they got plans to do that, but right now, I think he's in a safe zone. He's in a cruise control with the underground, so to speak. Not quite popping like the Avengers and Spider-Man and the rest of them. Um, or, or even getting that pop that Deadpool got from the first movie. So he's on his way, but I'm not sure... How much? Because again, it's only this this material. How far can you go with this material? I don't know. You know this what I'm saying? This is it right here. This is it's, it's very thin material. Yep, so this is it right here. This is the last one that they get, bro. This is the last one that they get on the house, man. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, man. And then let's talk about. I told you spoiler. I talked to you about the post credit scene. Oh, okay. and yep. yeah, let's get it because I actually wasn't spoiled about this online, and I think. Again, this is that internet age of always knowing and dissect, di- dissecting shit. I stayed away from the spoilers because I just wanted to go in this and have fun. And it definitely made a difference viewing this post credit scene of, at the end of the film, Eddie and Venom go to the islands and they're on, like, on a vacation. And they say they're going to fight crime in this island resort, whatever area. So they're in this, this, this pretty shaggy-ass, shady-ass hotel watching a uh, uh, Hispanic drama on TV and the telenovela? Venom Yeah, like some tele yeah, Telemundo type shit. <laughs> um and uh, they're just talking and this Venom symbiote's like you have no idea what I know. The knowledge that I have for thousands of years would destroy your mind. Here, I'll give you a taste. And he taps into his brain and then all of a sudden we see sort of that a little bit of that Doctor Strange magic happening in the in the in like the one division thing happening in their environment for a couple seconds and then boom, they're in the same room, but it's a nice high class tropical resort. Beds clean, the light is shining, the TV's like HD and shit now. And Eddie's like, What the fuck? You know, he's like, What just happened? And then we see, we hear J. Jonah Jameson's voice on the TV. And we see the same clip that played at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home with the, with, the, with the Peter Parker reveal. And they get closer to the TV, 
and Eddie's just confused, and then the Venom symbiote's like, this guy, and he licks, he licks the TV screen as you see Peter Parker unmasked on the TV screen. Um, and then that's the big, <laughs> that's the big reveal. So Venom has either A, officially entered the MCU, or B, Spider-Man has officially exited the MCU after No Way Home. Either so, or. Alright, let's chop this up here. So, first question I got for you, right? Uh-huh. The, okay, so in this scene, is the symbiote outside of Eddie Brock's body? Yeah, like, like a attached head. Like a, like a side oh, head. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So... So with that being said, before we even chop this up, I'm going to say mission accomplished for Sony. Mission accomplished. It took them putting their nuts on the table and, and bringing back a billion dollars to the house and an Academy Award either win or nomination for the big fish to really acknowledge and notice whatever it was that they were doing. Yep. So now... Regardless of whether this is a good movie or a bad movie, they got two of them on the scoreboard to where, you know, they can they can actually hang their head or hold their heads up high and be like, no, we're not going out like no band leader. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right. right. We're not going out like no band leader. You know what I'm saying? We 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 had a strategy and it worked. right? Right. So with this scene right here, my personal opinion. Whoa. Okay. Do you believe which which scenario is more likely? Is it more likely that Venom enters the MCU or that Spider-Man exits the MCU based off of numbers, analytics, hype, all of these behind the scenes things here? Which scenario is more likely in your personal opinion? Man, that's a tough question. I mean, the fact that we even got to this point Mm -hmm. is crazy in itself, in a nutshell. Man, from all the box office returns and the licensing and all the accolades and money involved, man, I I think, man, I think Sony, man, I think on either or, man, it's tough, it's tough. I think Kevin Feige is willing to play with Venom and Venom alone. I don't think Morbius comes with him. I don't think Craven the Hunter comes with him. <laughs> I think they might play with him for like a one movie Venom 3 kind of deal. And then maybe the multiverse or whatever can go reset back to normal. And then Venom can get his Spider-Man, his white spider logo on his chest and kind of lead the rest of the Spider-Man universe. Or so I, it's a tough question, man. I really, it can go either way, 50-50, man. You can flip a coin because Sony, Sony is in their bag right now. Yep. If Sony has the confidence to say, hey, we can pull you out and literally make our Spider-Man universe, the one we failed with Amazing Spider-Man 2 with Andrew Garfield, Yep. if they can do that, and all a simple explanation is like the multiverse was broken and then we restored it, but Peter Parker's gone. He didn't come back. <laughs> you know, that's a simple explanation. Um, I don't see Disney wanting to give up the Spider-Man name um, and branding 
because it sells so much merchandising and shit like that. Um, so I don't know, man. It's, it's such a that's why the moment is such it's such a crazy moment because you're just like this shit actually happened. Yep, this okay. shit like someone pulled the trigger on something, yep. and I don't know what the fuck is going on right now. You know, so because you know not to interrupt you, brother. My bad. Man, man, you good. It's it's significant because we didn't get that. We we were never gonna get that with the X Men. No, we were never gonna get that. You know, 20th Century Fox kind of did themselves in and ruined the X Men property to where there was nothing left but Deadpool. When Deadpool two came out, that came out at the time before you know everything that ended up happening had already happened. So mm-hmm. I get what you're saying. This is a unique moment because there are so many different ways that it can branch off and you don't know exactly how that's going to end up playing out. Um, in my personal opinion, I think that I agree with you. We're probably more likely to see Tom Hardy because Tom Hardy is a guy that has a lot of cachet. He has a name and value and all of that. And I think right. that the fact that he's the one playing this part brings credibility to the character. And it also is something that I think those guys over there would be interested in incorporating into some of the other things that they have going on. The fact that Sony is still able to navigate these choppy waters with Spider-Man being their in their end point into the MCU, they could potentially have two of those now with Tom Hardy as Venom. Eventually, I do think that at some point we're going to get Venom as a Spider-Man villain in a Spider-Man movie opposing Tom Holland. It's going to happen. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. If anything, that scene in that that end credit scene tells you that that's going to happen. Whether or not you see Venom interacting with uh, Captain Marvel or a Doctor Strange or a Scarlet Witch, all of that is non-consequential because all that really needs to happen is having him interact with Spider-Man. Yep. That's all that needs to happen. We don't ever need to see Venom associated with any characters from the MCU as long as we get the clash between Spider-Man and Venom in either a Venom movie or a Spider-Man movie. Mission accomplished as far as that is concerned there. They can do that without, I think, any kind of clearance from the MCU. The only issue that they needed to clear, the only hurdle that they needed to clear is getting us interested enough to want to see Venom opposing Spider-Man in a live-action movie. The only question that remains now is, can they reel in Can they reel in those guys across the street in the working something out to where this next Spider-Man movie after Far From Home can incorporate Venom and bridge the gap with the MCU? That's the only hurdle that they got to clear. And I think that it is more possible now than it was probably three years ago when this first movie came out. Oh, no doubt. No doubt, man. That's that's very well put and said, man. Because 
Venom One flops. We're not having this discussion right now. Nope. We're not, not at all. getting this post credit scene. This nope. end of discussion. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I gotta say, the character of Peter Parker, as he stands right now, he's gonna have to level up. <laughs> he's gonna have to level up to stand any kind of chance against this Venom man, because uh, there's gonna be no Mister Stark to help you out. There's gonna be no Shield to help you out. Well, I don't know. Maybe they will have S.H.I.E.L.D. help them out, but... And Peter it's cool Parker. if they want to do that. It's cool yeah. if they want to do that. But I get what you're saying, though. It shouldn't be that, though. It should be classic Spider-Man oh, versus man. them. Right, right. No, uh, you know, little Tony Stark has some secret files that I access, and now I have... It should be mano no mano Peter Parker versus Eddie Brock in a, in a nice confrontation. That's the best of Spider-Man that we want. I know they do, you know, they're doing a different take on him because he's in the MCU. But Tom Holland as a character, Peter Parker as a character, he's in trouble. He's because <laughs> this Venom is gonna eat him from breakfast, straight, straight up, right? Like in terms of, like the, the power scale and the the the, the killing ability that he has. Uh, Spider Man's in trouble, and I'm I'm excited to see him try to overcome this hurdle without any kind of assistance. So you know. This is the worst part about it, though. <laughs> the worst part about this little conversation that we just had is that we are more interested in that than we were in this whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And as a matter of fact, I mean, if you think about it, if they keep this new status quo, um, who's to say who's the Cletus Cassidy of this new alternative universe? Who's the who's the shriek of this new universe? Who's the Eddie? You know what I'm saying? So it's like everything that we watched is no longer can be could be retcon, no longer canon. Yep. If you really think about it. So, oh man, because you kind of got me thinking here, right? Because I think the failure of the Amazing Spider-Man one and two is that those movies were basically. Two, two, two hour plus advertisements for something that was going to come later on. Especially the second one. Yep. Yeah. The, the second movie was just advertisement for something that you might be getting in a year or two. Now, I know that this movie wasn't that, but there is kind of an element of that. Like, the, now that we kind of took a deep dive on it, it feels like this is a movie with no consequences. Uh, I mean, other than the fact that Venom was now, his cover was blown, he was trying to keep a low-key profile from the first film, because he wasn't officially busted, but he got away with all those killings and shits, and the second film, he's trying to keep a low low profile, and not kill anybody, and not kill criminals, because he doesn't want to get arrested and all this shit. So, at the end of the film, it is found out, yes, Eddie Brock is Venom, and he's on the run, so he can't go exactly back to San Francisco, so... With this new multiverse thing that just happened and negates everything that happened, like his girlfriend could be available for him to scoop up and be with again. You know what I'm saying? His ex-girlfriend could, you know, he, he could, that could happen. There's a lot of possibilities and retconings that could happen. So, in effect, everything we watch could have just been a, a teaser, so to speak, for the future. If, if looking back forth uh, and they continue this route, it could be, yeah, Venom 1 and Venom 2 is literally just a teaser. A commercial. Well, I mean, if that's what it took 
they still they still they still brought they still back won. a billion. Yep, they still brought back a billion dollars. They still accomplished the goal, and all it means is that a lot of people spent a lot of money to make this happen. And <laughs> if this was the plan all along, there's some smart motherfuckers over at Sony, man. <laughs> Yeah, man, there's some geniuses over there, man. Some straight because, up geniuses. Yeah. Because you know, it, it's very possible that they could end up innocent. It, it's very possible that after Far From Home, there's no more involvement with the MCU from Spider-Man. I don't think that can happen. But they've at least established a solid Plan B, just in case things go sideways. So. Nothing wrong with having a backup plan, man. Um, just one last word on this here. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier um, with the streaming situation and everything like that. Mm-hmm. The agreement between Sony and Netflix hasn't really, you know, it happened and then it went kind of quiet for a little bit. Do you see any kind of conflict of interest between certain parties that may be in competition with each other and the streaming rights to some of this content here because far from home is going to go to Netflix and do numbers on there. (laughs) Uh, Are are you saying uh, no way home or no, no far from home. Cause I mean, Sony made this, made that agreement with Netflix to where they get, they get the streaming rights. So, you know, far from home, Whenever it does kind of get that box office run, all three Spider-Man movies are going to be home on Netflix. Venom, oh, shit. Venom is going to be home on Netflix. Hmm. Like, that's, that's the agreement that they had there. You're going to see a Doctor Strange cameo. You know, you're going to see Doctor Strange being the co-protagonist in Spider-Man Far From Home, and it's going to be streaming on Netflix. <laughs> Ah shit, dude. Yeah, that that is hey, that is a very um Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of technicalities to that contract. Definitely with the Disney Plus um Ooh. Yeah. That, at this, yeah. At, at this moment right now, at this moment right now, Spider Man Homecoming and Far From Home are not on Disney Plus. Even though Iron Man is the co antagonist of um, homecoming. <laughs> I would say Netflix. Netflix got a good deal on that one. And Sony too. They Sony they too. Play. Yeah, I like yeah. it, man. I like yeah. it because if, if they would have, if they would have knelt down and kissed the ring, none of what's happening right now would have been happening. But on that note, Morbius needs to just go straight to Netflix. Oh um, my god, dude! You know what they're gonna sell that shit on now, right? What's that? Post credit scene. <laughs> oh, well, I we mean, see the, you know, I mean, and to be fair, that's they can do that, right? I mean, they can sell a whole movie of a post credit scene because we already saw Michael Keaton interact yeah. at the end of the trailer. So, like, is that Vulture or is that someone else? I don't know. You know, now we know yeah. it's a Vulture. And I mean, Craven the Hunter. I'm, I'm okay. Whatever. I mean, my level, my my general level of interest in a movie about Craven the Hunter is less than substantial. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm I'm really not interested in that. All I really <laughs> knew 
All I knew about Craven the Hunter is that he was a guy that wore like a fur, like a cheetah's fur around his neck, and he never put a shirt on. Nope. Man had the uh, the bikini bottom with the lion's fur around his neck, and was 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 going hand and feet trying to get Spider Man. So any Spider Man villain without Spider Man, I don't see how they work. Maybe you can do a Harry Osborn. Uh, I don't know, corporate espionage type business, Wolf of Wall Street type shit with him, with Norman Osborn and shit, but honestly, man, not a lot of those characters can survive without Spider-Man as the protagonist they go against, so Oh yeah. Oh man, Morbius needs to go to Netflix, bro, drop that shit ASAP. Jared Leto has another bomb on his hand. And and with the exception, with the exception of of Wilson Fisk, but that's mainly because they kind of they kind of gave him a dual function as a, as a daredevil villain. And that, right. that, that, you know what? Interesting question for you here, bro. Like, do you think is Kingpin better as a Spider-Man villain or as a daredevil villain? Ah, oh, man. Fuck, dude. As a, ah, oh, he works so good with both of them. And it's great that he shares the same universe. I would have to say that. Mm. From the comic books, Kingpin got personal when he killed Ami okay. after, Civil, after Civil War. That's the only direct storyline with Kingpin that I know of that Spider-Man had to go in jail, literally took off like the top of his suit and just threw hands with Kingpin in, in, in jail. Beat his ass. <laughs> <laughs> with the bikes. That shit went hard, man. That shit went hard. He went in jail and told Fisk, if you ever if I catch you ever doing some shit like this, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna come in here and finish the job. So he went in there. On the, yeah, yeah. He went in there and gave him the fair one. He didn't he did, yeah, because oh yeah, Ame didn't die, but she was like in fatal condition, or whatever. She they missed the shot for Peter because he was unmasked, you know, with the whole re- registration uh shit. So yeah, he, he went into jail he went to jail. Took off his top with shirtless, going symbiote suit, one on one against Wilson Fisk and that bitch man. Just, just, just. It wasn't even a fair match. But okay. I gotta say Daredevil, man. I gotta say Daredevil. And are we basing this off live action? Uh, live there, action and comics. Okay, so there, there, there is like a history on print between those two characters. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a history on print. I think Kingpin. Kingpin knew about his identity as well, Matt Murdock's identity as well, and put put the hit on him. Uh, and Matt was ho- yeah, born the Born Again uh, comic series is phenomenal, man. So great, great adversary for both New York vil- uh, heroes. But I gotta say, with Daredevil, with the more mature storytelling, they can go a little bit further than Spider Man ever could, per se. You know what I'm saying? Just because of the tone and the reach of what Daredevil can do. That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting thought. And I really just thought about that right now. Like, I would be very interested to know, like, what the consensus is on the relationship of Kingpin with those two characters there. Because, I, I like, like I said, I feel like, like Spider-Man, with, with, with his relationship with Kingpin... Spider-Man just wants him to stop what he's doing. Spider-Man would mm-hmm. rather just stop him as a criminal, more so with like with Daredevil, 
It's almost like everything Wilson Fisk stands for directly contrasts with what Daredevil stands for. So the dynamic feels more personal because of the level of commitment. Like Spider-Man has beef with, like, I get what you're saying. Like the beef that Spider-Man has with Kingpin is on the same level as like the beef he has with like a rhino or a scorpion or a vulture. Right. Yep. Yep. Like that. Exactly. You know, exactly. Like, King, like Kingpin isn't even Spider-Man's signature villain, but when you transition Kingpin to Daredevil, it's like, okay, this is a main event feud right here. Right. Cause it affects right. Matt Murdock's world a lot more directly than Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man, he, that's like a, a, a B or C. That's a side mission almost. You know what I'm saying? Right, like right. He, he's not going to struggle beating Kingpin. He's got super strength and shit. You know what I'm saying? It's more so what Kingpin politically can do to hire a villain. He'll hire a villain to beat up Spider-Man. He'll hire someone else to yeah. manipulate and do some shit. When he goes right. against Mur- Murdoch, he's like, oh, your, ho- your house is on the line. Your, <laughs> your livelihood's on the line. Your life is on the yeah. line. Your girlfriend's life is on the line. Everything is on the line. What right. Kingpin can do to Matt. Like yep. yeah, yeah. It's 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 like him and Daredevil got to catch the fate. Like it ends with two <laughs> of them. It ends with one of them not walking away from the situation. With Spider Man, right. Spider Man might cost them a couple million, and then you know make him pissed off. But it's not a situation he isn't gonna walk away from. So that's an interesting uh interesting topic there. Yeah, good question, man. Good ask question, dude. I don't I don't really hear a lot of people uh, ask that one. Yeah, interesting topic there. But overall, my bad. We kind of got sidetracked there. Overall, <laughs> you saying six out of ten? Six out of ten for Venom two, and I, I think that's good for me because I hated the first film. Can I? Would I watch this one again? I I think I watched some clips on YouTube of the of the church fight. I think I had some cool visuals with that. Uh, Carnage is more memorable than the first movie villain, which I have no idea who his name was or whatever. So. Yeah. He was a cardboard cutout bag. Cardboard, guy. and you couldn't even see the fucking fight, man. It was in the dark, it was choppy. You couldn't even see what the hell they were doing. So I give credit in this one. They put him in a lit church, gave it thunder, gave it some lightning, gave us some drama to the finale of this one. Six out of ten for people who like Deadpool. If this is the target, if you're the target demographic, you're you're gonna love this shit. Eight or nine out of ten. But for oh. me, yeah. And 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 I mean not for nothing, bro. But like. I don't care about any other symbiotes outside of Venom and Carnage. You don't care for Lasher and Riot and Agony and all those other colorful, the red one, the blue one, the green one, the pink one, all of them. Sh- I'm drawing <laughs> the a family. blank. I'm drawing a blank. I mean, they all look like Venom, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't care for Toxin, who's Carnage's son? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, <laughs> or anti venom, agent venom, anti agent venom, mania. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, dog. We on to the next one, man. On to the next one, folks. <laughs>
is literally a, it's a, it's a it's a carbon copy of Carnage, like just basically half red, half black, and he's like his dad, but even more dangerous. Like, okay. Oh sure. man, that reminds me of um, I mean, random, but like that kind of reminds me of Deathstroke's son. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Deathstroke's son, where they gave his son like damn near the same design as they gave him, man. Like, like the son of a villain. Like the, the kids that villains have rarely ever worked. The only villain that had a son that mattered was uh was Harry Osborn. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh oh, shit, man. The only son of a villain that mattered was Harry Osborn. Yeah, that was it, bro. Like, like nobody else fucking mattered, man. I mean, if we really, if we really keeping it all the way, and I mean, back to the hold on, back to the symbiote family okay. here, right? I can't. Okay, is there like a DC equivalent of symbiotes in terms of something that was like overexposed or anything like that, or is this just unique to Marvel? Uh, so, uh, like the equivalent of a overexposure for '90s for DC. Uh, it might be uh, not even Lobo, cause you know you, you Lobo didn't have like four or five different series and shit. Like, um, even okay. though he's popular, like Lo, you never got like okay. They just recently did Lobo's daughter, but you didn't see Lobo's son. Lobo's cousin, Lobo's father, like you know, there's not all of that shit going on with him. With and the fucking symbiotes, have you seen Scream? There's Scream, there's Agony, Lasher, Phage. Oh, they all have. He has a whole family, man. And I'm, you talking I'm, about? There's how many times of Earth has been invaded by the symbiotes? Like, yeah, dog. Like, I'm I'm really looking at this right now, bro. I see Agent Venom, like you were saying, Agent Scorn. Venom. Yeah, I guess Scorn is a female. Mm-hmm. I like Scream. Uh, Scream actually doesn't look too bad. I think the yellow and the red works for her a little bit. Okay, Agony. Like I'm, I'm very confused on what the significance is here. Agent Venom had to be out of the '90s. I'm looking at a picture of this motherfucker uh, here, dog. A- Agent Venom's 2000s, man. That's Flash Thompson as Venom. Uh, okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Because he went to Iraq. Or something yep. like that, right? Okay. Yep, he lost his legs and then uh they gave him a contract saying, We'll give you your legs back. You wanna serve you wanna serve again, you wanna be somebody again? We yeah. got a tame symbiote for you. And you just yeah. take these little needles every now and then you can control it. Agent Venom has a utility belt, a mm-hmm. forty five on his waist. <laughs> it looks like it looks like a, a slim down two two three with a scope on it, dog. Like, I know he has a knife on him somewhere, too, man. <laughs> uh, that was not too bad for run, man. I actually enjoyed that run with Agent Venom. That was actually kind of dope, what they did with I've, that. Yeah, I've actually heard pretty decent reviews on um, on Flash Thompson as as uh, yeah. as Venom. But, I mean, bro, like, there's a green symbiote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a symbiote that has horns. Um, like, Isn't what is it? Agony. Like, like, what are we doing here, bro? Like, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Like, uh, the the good news is they're not using. It doesn't look like they're using 
these Venom movies as like an introduction to the to the Marvel symbiote universe. That would be <laughs> kind of lame. You know what I'm saying? It'd be it would be yeah. kind of lame if each movie he has a a villain that's a, a new a new symbiote. symbiote. Which honestly, if they didn't have that deal going on with Tom Holland, and we might have gotten Venom three with Agony or Scream or Talk Toxin, probably would have showed up for Venom three. You know, like they got away with it twice. Could they get away with it a third time? Maybe. I, I don't know, man. Yep, yep. You said anti Venom. Let's see mm-hmm. what No or Cunol. Noel is. A, they retcon that that's like the origin of the symbiote. He's like the symbiote god. He's like a cosmic god now. He created life and shit. They retcon him. <laughs> I'm not even bullshitting you, man. Wait, what? Yeah, uh, no, no. He's like, he like created, he's like, he was there in the beginning of time and he made like the symbiotes and the symbiotes are ancient. They're like cosmic, like, uh, Almost like you know, like the Eternals and shit, and uh, like I think the Eternals and someone else had to handle him, and he regained his power, and he sends symbiotes throughout the universe. They're symbiotes of birth from him, and oh. all this other shit. They retconned it like two years ago, whatever. He's he's a new character. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, everything everything comes full circle. The longer. The longer something stays around, man, the longer uh-huh. it just, the more it just spirals out of control and stops making sense, man. Did, so did you, you see? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, bro. So we go from symbiotes being aliens to being like divine beings. Yeah, okay. originating from a divine being who's like the the king of symbiotes. Mm-hmm. All right. They had, a whole, they had a whole storyline last year or this year called Keenan Black, where he invaded Earth with the symbiotes. He covered the whole Earth in the symbiote, and he invaded Earth. And Venom had to kill him, and Venom killed him, and now Venom is like the king of symbiotes. He's like oh, cosmic. Goodness, bro. All right, so what were you saying? You were going to ask me, did I see something? Oh, they got the Venom variants, too. I'm not sure if you knew about that. They have the non-canon, you know, variant covers of your favorite Marvel superheroes being possessed by the symbiote. Oh, my goodness. So you got symbiote Captain America, symbiote Iron Man, symbiote T'Challa, symbiote whoever. Oh, man, where's symbiote Deadpool at? Oh, they have them. They got them. Oh my goodness! Oh, I'm sending to you right now. What the fuck, man? They got uh, where you at? Yeah, they got symbiote. (laughs) They got symbiote Deadpool, man. You knew that. I mean, I, I, I'm mad. Like you already knew that had to happen. Oh yeah, dog. Like that's that's marketing. (laughs) That's 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 marketing. You just can't. You can't leave that alone, man. You know what I'm saying? There's too much on the table for that. Money oh. on the table right there. Oh, uh, this looks terrible, dog. Oh my god. Looks like somebody dismember looks like some dismembered body is getting an upgrade. Four symbiotes. Four big honking hankerings to waste carnage. And here I thought split personalities were fun before. Uh, wow. That's your target demographic for uh, Venom. Yep. Okay, man. I mean, well, 
Yeah, dog. Uh, uh, man, man, man. Mm-mm-mm. What do you say? Mario is everything to Marvel. Symbiote is everything. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, dog! Like this is that. That's fucking hey, terrible. Hey, you know what's? You know what? Tom McFarlane's probably pissed the fuck off because he can't get any checks from this shit. <laughs> I, oh man! Oh man! He's mad as fuck. He can't get no checks from this shit. Yeah. Well, well, hold on, bro. Like, and now I'm wondering this: Was there ever a reference? Was there any kind of reference to um to symbiote in the Amazing Spider-Man series? Uh, you talking about the movie? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was some kind of fucking reference, man. They reference a whole lot of shit, man. There's a lot of Easter eggs they put in that damn thing to try to make that Sinister Six, uh, movie and all these other spinoffs and shit, man. Um. I think there was some kind of thing like there was like Eddie Brock was in a fucking uh, mention some newspaper article type shit. Mm-hmm. I don't think the symbiote, but I think Eddie Brock was mentioned some kind of online article or some kind of newspaper print. Man, get that get that shit out of here, bro. Like we go from we really go from from the symbiote being like outer some intergalactic alien space goo that makes Peter Parker have confidence in himself to a divine being that created like what are we doing here man comic books are fucking crazy dog crazy man <laughs> they they you know what they did they power rangered the symbiote in the 90s Yo, man okay yeah you just sent me this here so who, yep. okay so who all is in this picture dog the gra- I, I see a green one a black one a yellow one uh, and two females here there's, bro there's, there's scream i see agony I think that's Lasher, the green. I don't even know who the gray one is. Um, I don't know this orange one, man. But it's pretty much, it's symbiote time. And they morph into the symbiote oh. green. <laughs> <laughs> and they all combine together to make one super symbiote in the end of the man. issue. The only thing missing somewhere, bro. Like, I know Marvel and DC worked. Together on a couple of things, bro. The only uh, thing that didn't happen. I, I don't know how the nineties. I don't know how a whole decade in the nineties passed, and there was no symbiote Jason Todd, bro. Oh my god, bro! That would have been perfect. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know oh, how that shit that never happened though. Like that's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. That, that never happened, man. Like oh, that Red Red been... wasn't around by then. I think Red Hood Day Sweeney Todd was still dead in the nineties. Uh, fair enough. I mean, I'm yeah. glad that it never happened, but it's still a surprise that it never happened. You know what I mean? Like, oh my goodness. Oh, man. shit, dude. The symbiotes, man. They, they, I mean, it made 800 mil for a reason with the right cast, the right crew, and the, you know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. The source material, there is no, like, depth to any of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is really no depth. Yeah, for real, so, these you, characters. so you could just plug like now. I'm I'm thinking about this here, man. You could just plug in any character with a symbiote suit as like a buff to where now they're like an anti-hero or more edgy without any real character depth. I just I get it now. That was what the entire purpose of the symbiote was to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah, make Peter a little bit more darker and make him more menacing, you know, color, uh, character change per se without 
major consequences like oh the symbiote suit it kills you if you don't take it off you within a certain amount of time it poisons you essentially and then it turned to like oh well, eddie brock had cancer so it was feeding off his cancer that's why the symbiote suit can stay on him and then eventually just turned into like they retcon that to like it just changes your mood like it can they can make it whatever the freak they want you know what i'm saying like it never stays the same there's like four or five retcons and iterations of how it works so you're essentially right man <laughs> Mm-mm. Yeah, dog. I'm out of here, man. I'm I'm out of here. <laughs> That's a dog. I'm Alright, so at New York Comic Con, they just released a trailer for Dragon Ball Super Super Heroes. Coming out next year, it's the next installment of the Dragon Ball Super franchise. We haven't had an update on this bitch since the Broly movie. Um, I've been waiting a long time for some kind of next clue of what they're going to do with the story. I know in the manga, they've had, um, what's the name? Morlo, Mordo, Mordo, and they had... Um, this new asshole that's stupid as fuck, but so this Dragon Ball superhero movie, man, I think it's taking place uh, a little bit of a time jump. Pam, Pan is a little bit older. We see Piccolo, we see Krillin, we see some side characters, we see the Red Ribbon Army is back. Um, after all these years, the original job squad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> the original job squad. <laughs> uh, for real, dog. The original, the 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 original <laughs> job squad. You know what I'm saying? The gang that couldn't shoot straight. No nope. Dragon Ball Z, bro. These niggas couldn't make a cup of coffee, man. <laughs> oh man, you you ain't telling a lie, man. You ain't telling a lie, man. Literally got marked so many like twice now in the franchise and they're back again i'm guessing they got a new android i'm guessing they made something some kind of new thing um so you saw the trailer yeah man i mean it was i mean it's 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 a short clip obviously yeah a little clip it's, it's only like a 50 second clip what i'm gonna say there's there's two parts of it for me here like i do like that they are making an attempt to modernize the property as far as the animation style goes. And I don't think, like, whenever Dragon Ball Super comes back in fucking 2025 or whenever. <laughs> At this rate. Yeah. Whenever Dragon Ball Super comes back, I know that the animated show isn't going to look like how this movie is being animated. I know that. And I'm okay with that because it does kind of add something special to the fact that, yes, this is a movie. This isn't an OVA. This isn't anything like that that just comes easily for the people involved. It requires real effort for them to show you what this looks like here. But I, I think, like, the other part of it here 
Do you feel like, does it kind of look like Fighter Z a little bit, man? Dog, man, you're not the only one that's saying that shit, dude. It does. It does look like video, looks like Kakarot cutscene, the new Kakarot game. Looks like Fighter Z. Some scenes, some shots look good and other shots look bad, man. Some shots look like leftover cutscenes cut from Fighter Z, bro. I think. I think they acknowledge that they're doing a mixing of animation styles. Some of it's hand-drawn, some of it's digital. And they're yeah, combining okay. the two styles. And, and, and I mean, that's okay because there's some interesting things that they're able to do. There's some things that they did with the Broly movie that looked great. So I don't want to nitpick at that a little bit too much. And I'm not going to be that guy that says this isn't my Dragon Ball because it's not. This is Dragon Ball Super. This is something that's if this movie like if I'm not even mistaken, you know, like Dragon Ball Z, if if I'm if my memory serves me correct, like Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z were probably the most graphically violent properties attached to this entire IP. Right or wrong? Yeah, and I have to say Z. Like nothing has come close to Z what they did in terms of right. graphics and violence. Yeah. So I'm I'm not too bothered. Like Dragon Ball Super, I don't I watched all the Dragon Ball Super. There was no blood on Dragon Ball Super. Like I'm okay with all of that. So if this movie is a little bit toned down and not taken as seriously. Number one, I like that it's colorful for one. I, I love that there's color mm. to what it is that they're doing. If this yep. movie if this movie kind of kind of pulls back on the violence a little bit and is actually telling the story and giving us some details about characters and more things that we didn't know about them before, I'm okay with that. I don't need this movie to be a hour and a half version of everything that came before it because it'll never be as good as it was before, but what it should be is great for when it comes out. Right, right. I think this is kind of serving servicing up what we just talked about with uh, Brandon and the rest mm-hmm. of them for that last Dragon Ball discussion. We wanted to mm-hmm. see the world, the Dragon Ball, what the humans are up to, what the Earth, you know, Earthlings are up to. We wanted to see what Piccolo was up to. This looks. This is the most we've seen of Piccolo in a freaking long time, man. Yep, long ass time for for a film. You know, he got jobbed out with the chopsticks by Beerus. I mean, everyone got jobbed out, but the chopsticks was like, damn, man. Like, they had to do him like that. Shit. Man. Oh, like, man. He didn't even use his hand. chopsticks. You gonna let Piccolo go, like, go down with some chopsticks? I, I ain't gonna lie to you, though. I still think the worst treatment of Piccolo ever was in Triamite. That's the worst. That's the worst treatment of his character ever ever dog like, i don't even remember that shit to be honest with you oh man it's it, like bro that shit st- like i feel a way about that piccolo got violated by turlis mm. he got fucking i mean bro he hit he hit turlis with an attack turlis puts his hand up barely even gets affected and then like you know what i'm saying <laughs> he got like well i'll send it to you later like it, it all right, all right. He got Piccolo <laughs> got violated by Turles in Dragon Ball yeah. in Dragon Ball Z Triamite. Like, yeah, non-canon, but it's canon in my head because I fucking seen it. The, the visuals are there. Yeah, I mean the chopsticks was bad, but you could at least rationalize that by saying, you know what, 
Beerus sunned out everybody in right. that scene. But you yeah. know, the chopsticks, that was some, that was nasty work right there. <laughs> but for real. So yeah, if 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 this movie is kind of highlighting and giving us insight into the characters, but maybe not giving us as much action as before, I'm okay with that. Like I I don't want to be overly negative because with Dragon Ball at this point in time, it's something that I have fun with. I enjoy it. I'm never going to take a deep dive and be overly analytical and critical of Dragon Ball. I'm, I'm just not going to do that at this point in time. You know what I'm saying? If you're waiting on Toriyama to give you everything that you want, you haven't been paying enough attention. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, shit, dude. You ain't telling a lie, man. You ain't telling a lie. Oh, man. Nah, man. For real, this is a fun... I don't need the stakes to be high, man. I just think this would be fun. Mm-hmm. I want to see some different characters. If Pan goes Super Saiyan and, and Piccolo can can reach another level, get some fight scenes in there, and Krillin can get some fight scenes in there, I'm cool. I don't need. I don't even need Goku and Vegeta in this shit, for real. They could be off training, off the planet somewhere, and leave it to Piccolo, Gohan, and the rest of them to defend the Earth against the Red Ribbon Army coming back. I'm completely fine with that. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is 70% comedy and story. I'm cool with that too. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, this is not, I'm never going to be like, you know what? Dragon Ball super kind of misses some of the drama and the, uh, the tension and the buildups and all that. But it's not like I'm ever going to be like, man, fuck Dragon Ball super. I'm never watching this shit again. This is kind of like DLC, man, for, for me, you know, this is like DLC for me. This is a bonus, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think I, I get to give a shout out to Mario, man, my artist, because he did, he watched our, he listened to our episode of Dragon Ball Talk with Granola and some of the grievances we had. And he brought up an interesting point in the fact that we grew up on Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. Um, we watched all of those episodes for Dragon Ball Super. It's, it has a new audience, you know, it's reaching uh, a new people that never watched the show before. So when we see things being reused or kind of like, oh, that storyline's pretty similar to what they do with Boo, it's uh-huh. because they're literally redoing it and remixing it again for a newer audience because they know those audience, this, the new audience, they're not going to go back and watch 300 plus episodes of Dragon Ball Z. No one does that. <laughs> nope. No only one does us. that. We're the only <laughs> ones that are doing that. Only the hardcore, you know what I'm saying? Like even us, like if there's a moment we realize, we'll we'll YouTube it, we'll, we'll YouTube clip it, you know what yep. I'm saying? But most people, like you know, there's a funny thing with the anime crowd saying no one watches One Piece. Who's gonna watch 500 plus episodes of One Piece? And Roger. some people do it. <laughs> some people do it, but most don't. Most yep. say fuck that. I'm not doing that. Yeah, the Gardner was the only guy that I knew. That really put himself through that, bro. <laughs> Shit. I mean, I, I and you said 900 episodes? They, they got 900 episodes, man. When did that, when did One Piece even start? Like, what year? I got uh, Like, early 90s? Like, pretty much oh. similar to Dragon Ball. It's been around for a minute. Like, bro, you got it. Like, how much filler is in there, dog? Like, Damn. 900 episodes, but you never hear, you know, it's the crazy part. You don't really hear people complain like, oh, all that filler. Like, they love that shit, man. Like, after, like, it's, it's a slow start, but they love, no one complains after watching 900. Like, that was a waste of my time. People yeah. love that shit, man. 
995 episodes. Bro. Yes, sir. Whoa. <laughs> you know how many, how much, how much years of that of your life you take off marathon man, that man, shit? Man, there's no, there's no way, bro. There, there's no, I don't even like, yeah, dog. I, I don't got that in me like that, bro. You know what I'm saying? Damn, yeah, man. I mean, yeah. shit. Shit, SVU on Hulu is like 23 seasons, and I'm only on episode five of season one right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, dude. I mean, damn, you talking about 900 episodes? Nah, bro. Like, even if I hit, I got to hit the lottery. I got to hit the lottery to even justify having that kind of time to watch it like that, bro. I'm going to just sit here for two weeks, a month, and just roll through it. (laughs) Yo, and and, and, and if you're watching that bitch, if you're watching that bitch sub, too, you're definitely a trooper. Your eyes are going to get burnt out looking at all that damn subtitle, man. Hey, you gonna be speaking Japanese when you're done with that shit, boy. Word, bro. What the <laughs> For fuck real. You said, and I mean, yeah, like so that makes that makes every that makes the whole Dragon Ball look kind of light in comparison. But I mean, yeah, you, you you do got a good point, man. Like I think we kind of need to stop holding this to a certain standard because. Our level of expectation is never going to be met. If we continue going into each Dragon Ball progression with the idea or the expectation that it's going to top a very high peak, we're going to be disappointing ourselves each time. So when this movie does come out, I'm going to watch it. I'm probably going to enjoy it and I want to enjoy it. So yeah, I'm going into it. I'm going into it fresh and I'm going into it with the mindset of I'm here to have fun with this, man. Like, you know what I mean? So we, we can't break down Dragon Ball Z like it's the Eternals or, you know what I'm saying? Something like that. So when the time comes, bro, I'm looking forward to having that review. I think that it's going to be very controversial for no reason though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, so far the reception has been good with the movies, the battle of, uh, Battle of the Gods and mm-hmm. uh, the Broly movie. And I mean, the only one was okay, Resurrection F has a stigma to it. I gotta admit, it does. That's kind of like the stinker of the three. Mm-hmm. But overall, people are, you know, they're happy with it, with the films. And uh, I think the animation style is gonna turn people off. I think people are gonna think it's a video game. Again, this is early footage. They could tune it up. There's a lot of work to be done. I'm thinking this is gonna be even like November of next year. It's not even like a spring or summer. It's going to be probably probably a late release. So yep. I got, I'm happy if Vegeta, uh, Piccolo, Piccolo get some, uh, some hits in and have a, I'll have a good time, man. That's all I really need, man. Our expectations are oh. oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, bro. Like, so is this non-canon? No, it's canon. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's canon. It, it takes place after the Broly movie. Broly's actually in the trailer. You just, wow. Yeah. Broly's in a trailer. You just vaguely see him. He like uh, Goku does a dodge, and he's in the back of the dust. So Broly, this is canon. This isn't a side thing or nothing. This is canon. This is the next story for Dragon Ball Super right here. Okay, and then um, well, kind of to address the elephant in the room, since we're on the topic of Broly, um, mm. 
there will be a new voice actor for Broly, I imagine, right? Yeah, I think they got Johnny Ambosh to do it. Yeah. Yep. They addressed that. Johnny Ambosh, huh? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so Vic, he's out of there. He yeah, he's been out. Yeah, they, they, they took him out at the you know, the nearest time of hot water that they're in. They they, they got him out of there. And, <laughs> the um, nearest time of hot water, huh? Like as soon as that water was getting a little bubbly, it didn't even boil yet. It was just kinda getting warm. Nah, they uh they got him out. So I mean for better or for worse, you know, I don't know the legal cases, I don't know what happened in court, I don't know what really came out of all that. I think he countersued because there was no proof or whatever. But um I you know, I get from from a business point of standpoint, like I I wouldn't want that heat uh, you know, from my company. So I man, it's just sucks. It's the it's the culture of the times, I guess, sign of the times. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know, man. What I'm wondering is, like, if that's a better, if that's a topic that would have been better served for homeboy talk as opposed to uh, behind the scene. Because that was a um, very, very tense and strange kind of situation there. And I don't know if I really have a full grasp on everything that happened in relation to him being fired officially and no longer affiliated with Toei Animation. Yeah, that that's a pretty hot take, and that's a pretty that's a deep dive that uh, I'm honestly you'd have to do some research and get some perspective on that. Um, but I mean, here's a question for you, man: with what what do we do with Broly right now? We got the Goku Vegeta show. You mm-hmm. add in a th- saying what what kind of dynamic does that add to the show? If we got Broly. Uh, as powerful he is now as kind of the third baseman, the third, you know, you got Kevin Garnett, you got Ray Allen, you got Paul Pierce mm. now for for the Dragon Ball Z Saiyan squad. So how does that add to the, to the dynamics of the show? I you mean, think? speculation. I think, well, in my opinion, bro, I think that they built up a lot. There was a lot of hype and anticipation to see Broly in that movie. And there is a part of me that likes the idea that certain characters should keep a certain level of mystique and like specialness around them. Broly is a special character in relation to Dragon Ball Z, period. Like we always knew about Broly. The only time that we seen him were in the movies that came before. So Right. It kind of, regardless of the quality of those movies and how you felt about them, the fact that he was a character who was outside of the mainstream continuity that still ended up being popular meant something. If the formula for Dragon Ball Super is to do the manga, movies, and a animated TV series, I think we should just keep Broly in the movies. The mm. only time... I think we should see that character is when is every, you know, every two, three, four years when the team at Toei Animation wants to put together another movie. Because if we get him as a recurring or somewhat regular character on Dragon Ball Super, whenever they do decide to come back with that, I think we run the risk of watering down what he's actually capable of. You know, we already got Vegeta, who's clearly the 
second man up. We already mm-hmm. have characters like same with Trunks, same with Future Trunks. We got Future Trunks for a singular arc in Dragon Ball Super, and I probably would estimate that we're never going to see him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a safe bet. We're we're never going to see him again, but for that brief period in time where we saw him, the stakes were raised, and it was something that was important. With Broly, I think we can do the same thing with the Dragon Ball Super movies and just keep him being that character that you only see when it's a special event. That's that's my opinion on that. Okay, man. No, that's a good take. Right, because the more you see him, the more the character can get watered down, and I don't want to see the character of Broly, you know what I mean, doing some of the anime hijinks and the facial expressions and all of that. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a secret that, you know, the quality in animation with Dragon Ball Super has been a topic of conversation for a lot of people. And I yep. don't want to see that character subjected to that. I don't want to see that, bro. Yeah, man. I you, you, You're hitting the right on the nail right on the head, man. It, he is a very special character. You have him reoccur every, you know, as a reoccurring character in the show. You uh-huh. put Vegeta at number three, <laughs> essentially. Uh-huh. And uh, now it's like, oh, every villain now has to face Goku, Vegeta, and now Broly. I think that's a little bit too much. Uh, yep. Keep him from the movies. Keep him for like an Avengers-type team-up for Dragon Ball. I think, like you said, every three, four years in a film uh, works rather than just like, okay, well, they're going against Granola. And now Broly has arrived. So now that Goku and Vegeta defeated, now it's Broly's turn. Like, we don't need that. I think keep him special. Don't have him go through too many hijinks. Keep him as a silent badass warrior who pops up every now and then when shit gets a little bit too real. And I think that's the best way to treat that character and keep him special. Yeah, because you can't do that. You can't do that when he's in the regular rotation of some of the other characters like you know um because who's really the strong silent character in dragon ball z i mean the only one i can really think of is tn but you know tn might be a a underground fan favorite but we've never really seen him pull it off we've never really seen him you know pull off that signature moment to where it's like okay tn has arrived you know what I'm saying? <laughs> nah. His only highlight in Z, and you know it, was when he when he stand off cell with his oh, little yeah, trot beam. Now that was that a dope was moment. Yeah, that was fire. But yeah, I agree with that. All that was just buying time. He never had a a W. He never had like, oh shit, Tien is a formidable anything. So Piccolo, Piccolo had that role, but in Super is he definitely and that's character growth. He's tone he's definitely more babysitting pan. And uh, he's definitely more like a normal character guy. He's not that silent, brooding, quiet, mystique character that he used to be, which is fine because that's character growth. You know, he's Uncle Piccolo now, dog. (laughs) Uncle P. uh, Just a breadcrumb for later. And I mean, I think Arthur will have a good time with this. And I think O will have a good time with this. But we, we, We need to readdress like, are comparing contrasts with Dragon Ball characters and WWE wrestlers, dog. Oh like, yeah, that's needed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's gonna be a good time, bro. That's that's gonna be a fun conversation. Whenever uh, we do we do get around to that, man, because 
there's some there's some ideas that I got in my head, man, and a lot of it just makes too much sense the more that I think about it. But oh, I can't shit, man. I, I can't shake the feeling that Goku was Hulk Hogan, man. Like <laughs> and I'm saying like character wise. I'm not talking right, about right. like person wise, but Goku He's either Hulk Hogan or John Cena. One of those two. I mean, if you don't want him to be Hogan, that's okay. But Go- but Goku is definitely John Cena, man. You know what I'm saying? Man, he got that Hulkamania running through him with Akira Toriyama's Vince McMahon, man. Like Word. <laughs> Word. Like, I'm never going to recover. Like, I never recovered, and Gohan never recovered. But we've already, we've already, we've already had that gushing. Oh man, I would I would at least hope that uh, Gohan would you know make an appearance in this film because his daughter's in it. But who knows, man? Who who freaking knows? I mean, you're gonna see Gohan with the suit and the glasses on. I will fuck that, man. I want to see him training, man. Like I yeah. I, I want to see him training. Like with the tournament of power. My bad, bro. We going off on a tangent. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. How, how much time we got here, bro? We good, man. This is just Dragon Ball discussion. We're going to end on a good note, man. Keep cooking. So, so, like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, now, Gohan might not have might not have won the Royal Rumble, per se. Mm-hmm. But he had a great showing, and I was interested in everything that he was doing to where it at least kind of restored some of my faith in him like my favorite scene involving gohan was when him and piccolo pulled up on goku and he was he was mean mugging his pops bro yeah <laughs> he was he was, <laughs> he was mean mugging his pops like it, it was time you know what i'm saying it, it, it was it was really time for 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 him to see where he was at but also kind of let his pops know like you know this is this is what it is. I'm taking this serious. You don't got to worry about me. He was mean mugging his pops. He was there for he the was. smoke. He was, man. I remember that episode. <laughs> I think he knew he wasn't going to win, but he was still there to kind of catch the wreck a little bit. So, like, right. that was the middle point for, for that character. I don't remember. Like, how did he get eliminated in the term, tournament power? I forgot about that. Uh, I think he he fought the... Oh my God! I can't. Jaren Squad. What was the damn name, man? Jaren Squad. Oh man, damn. Oh, fuck, was it man. The Power Troop? No, they weren't the, the Power Troop. The Pride Troopers? That's what they were. I, I think they were the yeah, the Pride Troopers. All right, Pride Troopers. Yeah, I think he got eliminated by the Beerus looking one, the Bunny one. Okay, um, the, the, the one that was fast, right? The one that was fast. I didn't know. I think he eliminated that guy, and then after that. I think Jiren got him out of there, or one, Topo. I think it was Topo got him out of there after he beat the the bunny one. Okay, all right. So, but, yeah, but he he had a he had a good showing. He did. You know he didn't he didn't end up getting played. Like he didn't look bad in in his effort in getting eliminated. You know what I'm saying? He went out on his shield more or less. So even though if I had the pin in that situation, Gohan would have been the one to go over in the tournament of power. Mm. I would have gave that to him. Personally, I would have gave him that moment. Maybe I'm just, that's just me being like nostalgic or being Uh a little bit biased. But if I was, you know what I'm saying, 
bro, we be using these wrestling terms like a motherfucker, bro. But <laughs> <laughs> behind the scene podcast, man, y'all already know what it is. If I was booking the tournament of power, Gohan would have been the one to actually win at the end. Personally, bro, like, is there a scenario where where you think that would be okay? Like, would you have been okay with that? Uh, if Gohan, let's say he got uh, Ultra Instinct instead of Goku and Vegeta and I beat mean, Jiren? I, well, maybe, but even without, even without Ultra Instinct, because Ultra Instinct served a purpose, but Goku wasn't even the one that ended up standing tall at the end of the Tournament of Power. Oh, you're saying swap him with 17. Right. Like it's, not okay. like, it's not like Goku was the one that won. It's not like they got a clean win over Jiren to begin with. You see sure. what I'm saying? Yeah. So if if you swap out, and I love that 17 was the guy that fucking like ended up winning. Like that was amazing to me. That was unpredictable. You know I like that. That was a good surprise. Word. Like that was amazing to me because that, that made him. That made 17. Like from here on out, 17 instantly is a top tier character in Dragon Ball Super, in my mm, opinion. Yep. Off the strength of that. But like, would it really have hurt if Gohan got that moment, bro? Or at least swap out with Frieza and been the father and son fighting Jiren. Yeah. At least. Yeah. yeah. You know, because I, I mean, Frieza is fun. You know, it's fun that Frieza got bodied. You know what I'm saying? It's fun that Frieza and Goku, like, oh, okay, they have to actually team up. Like, the unlikely duo had to team up. But I think, I mean, it still would have been cool if Frieza got eliminated when Gohan did. And uh, Gohan and Goku both went SSJ to attack Jiren, and then Android 17 got the final blast off on those three. Like, I think that would have been cool, too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That would have worked. Yeah, bro. Like, I don't want to take away from what 17 did because that was a dope-ass moment. Yeah. But my my man needed that, bro. Like, <laughs> I would have... <laughs> I, I swear, if I had the pin in that situation, it would have been Gohan standing tall at the end of the Tournament of Power. It made, it made more sense to me. Gohan was the team captain, bro. Like, right, and he didn't <laughs> lead nothing, essentially. <laughs> The whole team split up. <laughs> he yeah. didn't. Oh, they went rogue on his ass, and he couldn't even call him back in formation, man. Like, yeah, he was the team captain, man. Like, if if it ends with him standing in the middle of that platform, like, Gohan is going to WrestleMania, bro. What are we right. doing? <laughs> like, like, this man, like, the, the, climb, the climb to redemption has been completed. Right there in that moment, we're doing everything better than what we did it before. Everybody got redemption in, in there. You know what I'm saying? Vegeta, yeah. Vegeta got the beats put on him, bro. But like, still kind of went out like a warrior a little bit. You know what I'm right. saying? Mm-hmm. He took them punches and then kind of donated some of his energy. Like we knew that Goku, Goku looked like a beast going in the in in the Ultra Instinct, hanging with Jiren. Jiren. You know, mm-hmm. looked unstoppable. Frieza had his moments, but what was Gohan's signature moment in the Tournament of Power? Like, <laughs> oh man! Uh, I think he teamed up with Piccolo, and that was it. You got a little nostalgia kick from that, but he didn't really have that kick-ass moment, like you said. He didn't have that 
shining defining i mean even 17 punching homegirl who's trying to power up like that's a defining yeah, moment yeah bro that was funny as hell <laughs> word like he said we yeah. trying to run. i'm not i'm not waiting for your ass you know like, like he needed that he needed something he needed more they peaked him early again bro if i'm being honest about it man they peaked him early with that moment between him and goku they peaked him too early man that was his yeah. peak Throughout the whole Dragon Ball Super was that moment right there. And everything that followed was them giving us more false hope, dog. Like, damn, man. Why do we keep burying Gohan, bro? <laughs> Akira, what's going on, man? He just keeps looking at Gohan and saying, that's not going to work for me, brother. Yeah, this, it's, it's not your time, baby. Not your time. Yeah, he didn't even show up in the Broly movie, man. He didn't even, he didn't even, he didn't even peep out like, oh, what's going on over there? He didn't even show up, man. Man, what are we doing here, bro? Like, what are we really? I don't know, man. Like, nah. <laughs> I, like don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, Broly was going to body him, but at least he, you know, you could have showed up and said something. You know, I don't know, man. Like, like, like you said, just, man, it's just Gohan is like a lost cause at this case, man. And I, I would say it would be regressive as fuck if we see Gohan in this new movie and he's not training. It's like, you literally went through the tournament of power, you were captain, you, you went through this whole lesson of like, oh, I need to protect my family, I need to stay strong, you, you and Vegeta ain't gonna do it all the time, and we see the super superhero movie, and he's right back to square one again. And it's like, you might as well just drop Gohan from the damn show. Wait, Make- what's, the, what's the more likely scenario, though? The more likely scenario is that you see him with the suit and the glasses. He should be training his daughter, not Goku. You know, Ooh, not yeah, not Piccolo. It should be him, right? He should be training his daughter, and Piccolo should be the one critiquing, taking notes. You know mm, what I'm saying? Right, but right. That ain't gonna happen. Yeah, he's gonna be in the track suit and the glasses. Yep. Man, he looked like a bitch, and it's you like I, I don't even want to say that, man. He looked like a sucker. He looked like a complete sucker. He with did, man. Suit. And them fucking glasses. Oh man! Fucking haircut, man. Like he looked like Videl cut his hair before he <laughs> pulled up to the fight, bro. Like straight up, man. You know what I'm saying? Oh before, shit! Before he pulled up to the fight, Videl Videl pulled out the scissors, cut his hair, and then he left. And like let me chill out, bro. Because I love Gohan, man. It's yeah, tough he, love. Bro. He got punked <laughs> out, man. He said, "I'm not sure if I can go Super Saiyan." What? Hey, you, you what? <laughs> I'm like, are you serious right now? Like, for real. If that was the case, that was the case, man. You should have stayed your ass at home. (laughs) Like, like, I'm trying to think, man. Krillin caught more wreck in that scene than Gohan. He did. He did. He did. Him, Rastoroshi, all the rest of them. Like, but they got no, you know, they got excuse. They're humans, you know, they're limited in power and shit. But he, Gohan, he, man, he got buried, man. He got. He got buried, buried. He he went from main eventer to mid carter to damn opening the damn pay per view, oh. man. Opening the show. He you got some heat status right now, man. He on velocity, bro. Oh man, <laughs> he didn't yeah, even make bro. the show, brother. I, I see. I need I need something, bro. I, I need something, man. Goku's gonna be all right. Vegeta's always gonna be all right. I mean, Piccolo. Piccolo is always going to have that quiet coolness 
yeah. about him to where even if he loses, you respect him enough to where it's like, all right, man, you know, you know, Piccolo put in some pain. Piccolo right, put right. in put in blood into this thing right here, man. He doesn't <laughs> have to do nothing. Piccolo doesn't have to fight if he doesn't want to, but Gohan, like, come on, brother. Like And we talked I, about GT. He didn't even get anything out of GT if you think about it. No, he didn't. Vegeta got SSJ4 and he got the baby, the little baby form. Android, Super Android 17. Goku, of course, got SSJ4. Trunks was a main character. He didn't go SSJ2, but Trunks was still around doing some shit. Gohan Lily was not a factor. Man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. One thing I want to address with GT Uh before we kind of wrap this up here. All right, man. With, with with GT, man, I still feel like there's a disconnect because I never felt like there was anything to really get invested in, man. I never really felt like I felt like it was just something they made because they could make it. Mm, um, filler. You, you know, there's a couple moments in there that really that really kind of hit home, like Piccolo going to hell. And never and never coming back, like yeah, that's, that's still like a top, arguably a top ten, if not top five scene in Dragon Ball. The way Dragon Ball GT ended was perfect. Like grown men cry watching the end of Dragon Ball GT, but it never felt like any of that stuff meant anything, man. Like Goten was trying to get some pussy. The whole the whole series, yep. Dragon Ball GT, like Trunks was just a spoiled rich kid that needed to get out of the house because his parents wanted him to get out of the house. <laughs> Goku, being a child, I get it, was supposed to give you that sense of action adventure that the original Dragon Ball gave us, but all of that just ends up being fucking annoying, man. Like I will never go back and watch Dragon Ball GT. I don't care. How mundane or corny or cheesy Dragon Ball Super gets, nobody can ever tell me that Dragon Ball GT is anywhere near as good as Dragon Ball Super. That's my hill to die on right there. Mm. I mean, The Gods as a movie is better than the whole series of GT. I agree. I agree with that, man. Like, word. That's off the rip. Off the rip. Then that was a good impression. Off the rip. Wow, this is better than anything in GT. Boom. That was it is. That's what it was when the series started. I mean, come on. Goku Black? Come on, man. That Future Trunk saga with Goku Black? Better than anything in GT. Uh, It's like... Hit went harder than anybody in... Like, come on, man. Super Super got some... They got some characters, man. Y'all people be sleeping on a little bit. Hey, hey, you know what? I forgot about Hit. I forgot about him. Hit man. got jobbed out, but you know, he was at the time, man, he was cool as fuck. Yeah, you right. Hit uh man, Hit was like I don't even know who I could describe. Like Hit was like uh kind of like like Diamond Dallas Page or some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like, yep. Like, like Hit was definitely an upper mid Carter. But you knew he you 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 knew he was gonna get washed by Jiren, but you at least wanted to see him make his run, man. Like right. So yeah, bro. But other than that, man, the Dragon Ball conversation, I mean, we can go on 
we can go on all day long on Dragon Ball. This will not be the last time that we kind of <laughs> kind of discuss Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, man. There, nope. There's a lot, there's a lot there to talk about, and I'm just glad that you know there's still content, man. They still are doing what they're doing. We can say what we want about Toriyama or Toriyama, excuse me, but he knows how to get us to react to what it is that he's doing. So I'll give him credit for that as well. Damn sure, man. For damn sure, man. Uh, you know, yeah, we're going to return to Dragon Ball. That's uh, going to be a little bit of a staple for the series uh, here on Behind the Scene Podcast. Hey, we appreciate all you listeners out there, all everyone who comments, everyone who shares and likes and actually yeah, watches the video on Facebook and then makes a comment afterwards. I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, we, we're not going to talk about that right now, huh? <laughs> Oh, man. And then for those who just comment and just, you know, get entertainment off it without watching it, great. That's oh, that's great, man. too. You, hey, you know what, bro? I got one more thing here, dog. Right, go ahead. Go ahead, one, man. One more thing on this, on this, on this Monday here. Like, uh, in one year, like, by this point, I think we've been doing this for almost a year and a half. Or, like, a year. Yeah, almost a year and a half. About a almost a year, year and a half. Yeah, about a year and three months we've been doing this now. In one year, we've been called coons. Mm-hmm. We've been called shills. We've been called jerks. We've been called woke. Fake uh, woke. Fake woke. Hoteps. Hot- oh, see, that's news to me. I didn't know that one was in there, but I didn't see all of the comments. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we've been called hoteps, toxic, masculine, I think we've been called homophobic before. Well, Mm -hmm. in one year, these are all the things that we've been called. And I don't know for sure that um, all of the all the criticism has. I'm not going to say it hasn't been unwarranted, but I don't know, bro. The criticism that we have gotten in this (laughs) time of doing this, when I know for a fact that I don't think we've ever gone out of our way to intentionally try to stir shit up. I don't think Never. we've ever done that. You know? Never. All we do is ask the question and then we answer it as best as we can. That's it. Literally. You know? Or we ask people the question and they still come after us. Like, th- there, there have been topics, you know, there have been topics, there's been conversations that we've had that maybe I could have, maybe I feel as though we could have we could have conducted ourselves a little bit more tactful or addressed the mm-hmm. subject matter in a way that kind of more reflects our thought processes. But at the end of the day, man, this is all real time. You know, this is all in real time. We're not pre we're not pre gaming our reactions to these topics because that wouldn't be kind of authentic. But I guess what I'm trying to say is. You know what I'm saying? Bad guys always win. And this is the behind the scene podcast. <laughs> <laughs>